0: Hey, Never Sleepers. How you doing? Alex Ross here from NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Thank you for tuning into this episode of RNS. I want to thank all the great content providers here at NSN. Over the last couple weeks, we've had a new episode of Nick Beaton's This Is Not a Safe Space featuring Alex Wood. We had a new episode of Speech Bubble with Aaron Broverman recorded live at Harry Tarantula. And that was with Chip Sadarski from Howard the Duck, Spider-Man, Jug Head Captara Sex Criminals, very famous Toronto based Marvel comic artist. Uh, I want to thank Dylan Gott, who came all the way from the UK to be on this week's episode of The Potato Files with Jeff Paul. And of course, on May 23rd, we launch a brand new podcast, our first sketch comedy podcast with The Vest of Friends. Be sure to catch that May 23rd. Just want to say thank you to all of our exciting guests and to, of course, uh, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in, for checking out our original podcast from NSN. Thank you for listening. On this episode of RNS, we welcome Dan Spirin, the Vice President of the Independent Web Creators of Canada. Dan has been a pioneer of the digital creation age, not only opening doors, but opening worlds to Canadian content creators. Dan is humble, funny, kind... And a progressive thinker. Dan knows he comes across as opinionated and he wears his heart on his sleeve, which is why I respect him and his attitude so very much. Dan is here to promote the independent web creators of Canada and Toronto's TO Web Fest May 25 to the 27th at the CN Tower. Tickets are available at towebfest.com. From YouTube's The Young Turks Network to his latest project, Creator Town, to this episode of Ross Never Sleeps, the VP of the IWCC, Dan Spirin. just the sake of defining the difference between a creator and an industry well
1: like ipf like the independent production fund andre schiffer will come on the show eventually like i'm gonna have somebody from the cbc come on the show i'm gonna have somebody from like the writers guild of canada on the show those kinds of people right like it's an industry podcast so it's gonna be you know the head of unions and the head of people who are you know the canadian media fund who gives us money will probably come on and talk about i did a because we didn't have the studio set up with girth in place yet. I did like a, a Google hangout with them in the fall last year. And that was the beginning of, okay, we need to do a podcast. Like sure. we need to go back. And when I took over some of the communications gigs for the organization, it's that everyone's a volunteer. So it's like, what's the best way to do this and actually get the most bang for our time? You know what I mean? It's like, what can I do that gives me social updates that gives me, something for creators to learn something and also gives us some way to promote people. So there was like a part of where we originally did a YouTube channel before I was there at the organization. They did like YouTube stuff, but it was so time consuming because you have to d- tape it, interview it, edit it. And we just had all this footage that nobody had got around to editing. So it was just like all this hard drive full of content that no one had time to edit. So it's the time war. It's a time vampire that is, doing an organization when you're doing events we're doing meetups bi-monthly when you're doing web fest web fest alone should be its own thing like it should be a year project like i talked to tyler morrison recently he just finished his cottage country comedy festival and he scaled it down too because we're talking about like it's just people don't realize putting on an event is just like so intense you just end up doing things you never thought you'd imagine like trying to chase down somebody's headshot like just small things it's just it's So crazy. It's funny how industry trends
0: affect kind of the independent scene first, almost. Oh,
1: Canada, especially because it's all grants, right?
0: And the idea of simplifying an idea, in my head, sounds like the best way to take an idea to fruition. Because if you're going to complicate things, the chances of you completing it Are less. And the way that we look at podcasts is people are turning to podcasts because it's like PVR for entertainment updates. The ability to on demand pick who you want to listen to, what you want to listen to, and you're not constrained or, or forced to turn on a television, or the creator themselves is not forced to again edit massive amounts of footage and and the the workload and the payoff aren't the same anymore right. And that's why I'm actually really glad to talk to you today because I have so many questions about industry trends and, yeah. I f- and I feel like you are in the heart of it right now. And
1: I'm super honest. <laughs> that's why I will never make tons of money in this industry.
0: Well, is there money to be made or is there yeah. a, a you know, a, But not anything a job you and I want but... to
1: do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there is. But I, I think the, that career is a whole other conversation. The answer to all that, though, I think, the thing that's so frustrating right now, I'm going to be mesmerized by your amazing... This is a... That is an... I love your view. I know. It's so cool. Like, I just... Like, like I grew up in Barrie, right? So, all the Torontonians who, like, complain about all the skyscrapers and the highways and everything, I'm just like, yes, <laughs> skyscrapers, yes, highway. Well, if you go
0: to <laughs> cities like Seattle and New York, or even if you've traveled abroad and you've been to, like, South Korea and Gangnam and stuff like that, and you're like... I can understand how this can be hard on a city financially or smog or pollution,
1: but once you're in it and immersed in it, you love it. Like, you can't help but love it. I'm the reverse person. Like, I I don't want to spend... I I would go nuts if you camped me out in Sudbury or in Algonquin Park for too long. I'd go crazy. I'm, the like, a self-admitted city slicker. Like, I am... I love the city. <laughs> I couldn't not live. I couldn't I couldn't exist outside of a city. It's just how I'm built. I'm an, I'm an indoor cat.
0: There's a new study that just came out about parents raising their kids in downtown, not having a backyard. Yeah. And they would take families and they'd swap condo families with house families, and the kids who you would think would just go play out in the backyard for three, four hours. No, they're just getting out of the house and going to the park down the street because there is more to do. There is more other kids. So, oh,
1: that's interesting.
0: It's right. like you are not isol- you don't isolate yourself. That's why condo life huh. is kind of more compact, but you it's more fulfilling in a lot of ways. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I would love a backyard for gardening. Trish, my partner, loves to garden. I would love to eat fresh vegetables and stuff. But we also rent like a green space. We have the ability to kind of do that. It's No, it's not in our backyard. But it's not like we're limited in the backyard activities we want. Not having kids, not having a pet you know we're we go to the park we'll go enjoy what the city has to offer and if you go to Europe if you have ever been to Amsterdam everywhere you look there's a big giant beautiful park and people in their 30s their 20s kids everybody is in that park at all times of the day and it makes sense cuz you leave yeah and you're by a subway or you're by you know restaurants or you're by patios it just makes sense
1: we i kind of cheat it cuz i i rent 'Cause I'm not a rich person that can afford a condo in this well, I'm not even rich, but I'm not even well off enough to afford a condo in this place. Um, but I like I have a house. Like I have a first floor of a house and then a basement of a house, and then we have like a little back deck, but it's not like grasses. You can't grow a gart or anything, but it allows you to it kinda gives me the best of like I don't feel I spent years in like basement apartments and that kind of made me like underground or you know and I, I spent a couple years in like a stereotypical Toronto apartment layout with you know either three-story walk up and then like a 12-story thing and it was that those were okay but like it was nothing like this view downtown it was all up in like Young and Eglinton and then I spent some time at, uh, at Bayview and that east end but then I moved to the Danforth and I kind of like the Danforth was, like the middle ground for me where I get my city but I get enough of the like hokey small town like independent business thing that i'm like i kind of like this neighborhood feel yeah the further east you go on the yeah. danforth you're yeah. like on
0: a whole other planet like yeah, it's well, like I'm to totally Pape. disconnected yeah you're okay Pape, yeah paper's all right
1: well yeah the, the danforth it's changing so much though like the east end like that's how I we went one of the reasons why i went into girth because the east end for me is convenient but also because i really think that area is gonna blow up um, just because it's not developed. So like even on the the south of there, that Google's gonna looks like they're gonna buy the land and try and start doing some kooky tech stuff. Alphabets putting in money there. So we'll see what happens. But it's the East End's gonna get developed, right? Because the West End has been kind of cultivated to its final cultivation, the junction and everything. Like they've they've run out of places to trend up in the West End. So, so- I feel like the yoga moms are gonna get a little bit more attention in the east end and we're gonna get a little bit more culture there from what i can tell fingers crossed yeah the east end is been quiet long enough
0: where the west end's been like oh we're gentrifying we're gentrifying yeah. but everyone's moving to the east end when
1: they realize it's too expensive yeah. to live in the west and end then, and then the same thing will happen in the east end right it'll be like the same gentrification well the gentrification's already happened but it'll be the same kind of like trendy shit that'll come up and then the because what we always laugh about living in the east end i've been there since 2008 is that they'll like arts magazines and the inter- independent press like Toronto stops at Young Street. Oh yeah. Nothing east happens. Like they're like we have no idea what's going on in the East End of the city. Everything, every restaurant, everything that gets covered is all the Danforth gets a little love because of the taste the taste every year, but outside of that, nobody nobody writes about anything in the East. It's starting to change because they've written so many things about the West End, I think they're out of and they're they're trying to get more money too from advertisers so they clearly need to like broaden the scope of what they cover but it was always amusing living in the east end cuz we would start doing events for this organization and we would try to like pitch an event for the East End and people were like, why do you live so far away? I'm like, I live the exact same amount of stops from Young that you do. (laughs) You live farther away from the downtown core but I'm on the East side so people were just like, what is that magical land?
0: (laughs) It's definitely this West End imposed, you know, feeling of West is best so East can't even touch us. And then when you think about the highlights of the East, they're highlights because They're not overshadowed by the bullshit that kind of the West End breeds.
1: I'm, like, really, like, this makes me sound snotty, but I really can't deal with the cookie-cutter individualism of some of the Ossington area people like cookie I, cutter individualism that's yeah. an interesting way of putting well, it Well, because they all look the same but they think they're like they're, they act as different as possible but in that like clique in that clique they all look differently the same right so it's like it always made me laugh right it's just that Toronto we're really artsy and we're wearing our art and we're like, I'm like okay cool it doesn't bother me or anything like good on you but I don't know. I come from a comedy background. Like, I'm, I come from a blue collar place. Like, it's hard for me to walk down there and not roll my eyes sometimes. It's a millennial thing, though. Even though I don't we, think so. You it's don't think always so. been like, look at the 60s footage of Yorkville, right? It's the same exact If you look at what happened to Yorkville and Toronto from the 60s to now, it's the same thing you're going to see, like Trinity Bellwoods. Like, you can watch it happening. It's the, you know, the Instagram filter kids are going to be our gross, yuppie, like, they're going to be our awful nimby condo owners of the future are they developing the trends
0: of major industries though i feel like we are catering to that for sure like look at any app that comes out like that there was an app bico that came out today you know they're like how do we make money off
1: uh you hipsters you can like end the conversation right at that sentence though how do you make money <laughs> period nobody knows how to answer that question no well this app that
0: just came out i'm not here to plug it i just think it's interesting because it's a free app it's a free participation and all it is for hipsters or whomever in the west end or all of toronto that ride their bike mainly can get updates while they ride their bike while they document their trips and then advertisers will be like, "Oh, you're a bike rider, here's a local cafe that's yeah. gonna make." I mean, everything's like
1: 6 degrees of four square from like a decade ago nice. that never really took I off like that. And so, I don't know. I'm I'm a curmudgeon, right? Like I <laughs> I am too. My my natural nature is just to complain. <laughs> it's just how I am.
0: I don't think it's a complaining though, more so that it's like, "Open your eyes. This is what's actually happening to those of us that aren't affected by that market. Like this is how I feel. This is how I feel if if it was my way, this is how i would do it differently and you know it's easier to, to say than to actually do but it's funny that you have to think in the free realm you have to think how do we make sure people aren't spending money did you grow up here
1: yeah okay because i think that's really interesting because when i came here talking about like the spending money and you're talking about the like, neighborhoods and stuff because when i moved here when i was 1920 to do stand-up I really noticed that everybody was quadrant. It was like quadrants. Like this city, like you'd ask somebody in the West End where something in the East End was or vice versa, and nobody would know. Like it was like if you grew up in this neighborhood. And so it was this odd thing because say what you will about car cultures like Barrie where I grew up or whatever, but you're forced to like, because you have a vehicle, you get around to different spots more. Whereas Toronto... Even if you have a car, you don't want to deal with the crap that is Toronto traffic at 6 o'clock on a Friday. So, it's an interesting culture because... The cities very much like there's tribes there's a lot of different like neighborhoods and people take their neighborhood almost to a patriotic level and i think that's really interesting because like when you come from outside of toronto you there's not a lot of places in, where you're like you know what <laughs> <laughs> i am clearly from x area And know everybody, everybody be like you're an asshole <laughs> like what are you talking about we're all from this city but in toronto and I think the mega city probably haunts this city you know that happened when I was a teenager, so I didn't really pay much attention to it and now I move here and i pay I've read more about it in retro actively right than I have when it actually happened because when you're looking at these things, you can tell the the scars of making Scarborough putting like all of this you know east york and and putting all of the different burbs if you will, into like the main core of the city and trying to have elections has become a massive train wreck because there's so much identity in your neighborhood here. And it's weird for me. I mean, I think it's weird from an outsider's p- standpoint because I've lived in a few places. I mean, I guess I'm patriotic about the Danforth area now, but that's a whole other tangent.
0: So you're saying that it'd be a lot easier, even on our government, let's say, if Scarborough was its own riding, its own individual entity. Well, a lot of that
1: stuff was, right? It was the mega city that stuck everything together. So I don't know. I feel like... It seems that, like, they people for whatever reason in Toronto, maybe the new folks can, but the old folks who've been around who are OG TO livers, they don't seem to be able to get out of that headspace. Like, downtown versus, you know, Scarborough is just like it sounds so silly to me, but here, I used to do these things at the Academy of the Impossible, and it was all about Toronto, right? And we would have these debates and salons about things. And there was just this, like, Toronto downtowner mentality. And then the Scarborough folks would come in, and they would get upset about what we would say about certain things. And it was really interesting to watch people have these communications breakdowns. And we're talking, like a matter of kilometers here. Like, it's like, it's just... But it seems like, takes me 45 to 50 minutes to get out there, right? From here, if we're coming into the West End, we want to go to Scarborough, it takes you a while on transit. So there's this idea that it's such a far ways away just because you're on transit. But if you got into a car, you could get to Scarborough fairly quickly. Well, it depends on what time you hit the DVP. Right. But I mean, if we all of a sudden just like removed traffic from the equation, if we're just looking at a Google map, if you will, you know, it's not... We're not that far, and we talk about them like they're far off places. But it's because we're so many people, and we're trying. We're to... not in the grand scheme of many cities. I don't know. It's. A... I think for our infrastructure, I'm just saying. Yeah, our infrastructure is a mess. It's like everything in Ontario. I don't know what we did. It's like I come from Barrie, right? And there's it's like crazy development right now. Well, in when Barry. I was a kid, it was like the fastest growing city in Canada. So when I was a kid, it was seventy thousand people. By the time I left for school, it was one hundred and forty. So literally doubled. So it was like a bad Noah's Ark thing of like two of every box store, just like all of a sudden. Oh showed no way! Up and like, okay, that makes sense. And then it was it was an interesting place to watch, and that started to happen. So all the development happened in the south end, and so the original Barry people would start to like. Well, we don't care about the south end. Like as if it was like wow. a, a weird civil war. Doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, yeah. that's gonna happen. So yeah, the, it's it's a hum, it's definitely a humanity thing. Well, I grew up in
0: Thornhill. Right. So, right in between downtown and Barrie, you could say, I would ride basically both waves. You go up north to visit friends or you go down south to go to school or to work or whatever. So, Thornhill was this interesting in between. We were kind of developed. We had a lot of older generations already in there, a lot of mix of people. And then when I came downtown, I was like, oh, this is what real life is like. You know, even when you go to Barrie, you're like, okay, there's a beautiful waterfront and there's cottages even. There's like kind of like this cottagey country feel out there, which is why I find Thornhill to be this funny middle ground because you go south, you're downtown. You go north, you're up north. And when I finally started going to Ryerson and, and started working and living downtown, you realize you are a downtown person very quickly, or you're like, no, I'm back, send me back to the Burbs, send me back to Barrie. But I feel like people like us in the industries that we choose to be a part of, you have to be downtown, you have to be in the heart of it, or that's almost like a loss of opportunity.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too, because a lot of people talk about the poverty situation where, you know, it sucks being poor and living in Toronto, and I agree with that, but it sucks worse being poor and living in Barrie. Yeah. (laughs) Because you need a car and you have to get around, and the cost of living... It's not... The, the difference once you add in car insurance and, and all of the things you need to get around and live your life, It's it evens out pretty quick. Whereas here I can get to, like, the best concerts, the best, like, art in general, and I can do it all on public transportation. I can get to everything I need to do work-wise. And so you leave the outside of the GTA and it takes you, like, six hours to get a bus anywhere. Like, it's just because there's not the people, the concentration of people, so there's not the need for... Solid public transit. So you're sitting there waiting for like a for a, a downtown bus in Barry. You could be there for like half an hour. So it's just it's it's just not convenient to live. It's a mentality. I think in a lot of
0: ways, I think when you move to Toronto and you're ingrained in it, you're almost spoiled to a point that you don't even realize that you're spoiled. When you're in Barrie, it's a Wednesday night and you're like, what are we gonna do? Where are we gonna go? We're we gonna drive an hour. To Moran's parking lot, baby. Well that's just it, right? Like I mean that these are the, the choices you make when you move to a home, if you wanna purchase a full sized home, if you wanna Live in a developed neighborhood that is kind of cookie cutter. That has big box stores. Where Toronto, any day of the week, for under ten bucks, you can get a drink and enjoy yourself for live entertainment. Um, talk about just seeing live concerts. Like over the this past week, Wolfpack, this crazy blown up band from Brooklyn, played three nights at the Phoenix, sold out shows. I live in the West End.
1: Phoenix is Sherbourne area. Um, that was my first apartment downtown Toronto. Sherborne like a block uh, north where that no- frills used to be. Hold on the
0: white building. no, it
1: was, the, it was it's it was five 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 Sherborne. It was an apartment. It's not there anymore. I think they tore okay. them down to build condos, but it was right above the no- frills that's not there anymore either. There was a no frills up on Sherborne, and it was there's an apartment building. there's three it's like five sixty five 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 five, and I don't know something else. So it was just just north of the Phoenix. was it sketchy. Well, I mean, we'll get into like the whole problem of what sketchy is and isn't, but yeah, I mean, it was like it was definitely a culture shock for somebody who came in from White Bread Berry. Sure, I went to Humber and lived in the West End, and there's really no neighborhoods out there. I was at near, I lived right on top of Lakeshore Campus in an apartment because they hadn't built residences yet, and then. When I moved downtown to do stand up and do things, I moved to like sherborne and it was yeah it was it was a little bit of an eye opener i don 't think it 's sketchy in what you would think of as like was I afraid for my life or anything no, but it was like definitely there was a lot of immigrant families and and oh really and um and and just families that didn 't have money like and i didn 't have money i was you know so I kind of like. Laugh. It's funny because I think there's a lot of white kids that have no money and they move downtown Toronto with other people that have no money, and I hear them be like, "That was sketchy." I'm like, "Dude, they're in like the same income bracket that you're in." Like, it's just yeah, it's mostly it's white, just, white
0: privileged yeah. rich kids are like, yeah. or like or semi rich kids whose parents aren't paying for their rent anymore, yeah. being like, "Oh my god, an ethnic person!" Yeah, like, I've never seen this it's before. Silly. But like, like I, I was saying, going to the Wolfpack show from the West End, jumping into, I'm fortunate, I have, I use all modes of transit, car, TTC, nice. bike. I'm very fortunate. But my buddy lives up the street. We're both going to the show in 10 minutes. Like the show, he's like, okay, buddy, this show's starting in like yeah, uh, exactly. 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, no problem. I'll come grab you right now. And we were early. We, you know, it, it's, uh, we're spoiled in that way. Even if we took the subway, would have been early. My point being is, the city is small when you need it to be small, and then the city is big when yep. you need it to be big. And you it's kind of how you act in the city, right? There's a lot of people who don't realize how small the city is. They have to live in it longer or get out of their bubble, or if they're living like Parkdale, let's say, and they're really craving good Indian food, you jump on the king or queen street car and you ride it all the way to Greenwood and Girard area, and you go to Little India and you ride it back. But most people in the far west end are like, you know what, I I wouldn't, I would rather not spend 30 plus minutes on a streetcar to get the best Indian or ethnic food in the city. So, you're kind of, it's funny, you, you, you'll go for what you want or what you need, but when it really comes down to it, unless you're willing to really enjoy the city for its grand size and what it actually has to offer, you're primarily staying in your
1: little bubble. It's really weird to me how that happens, though. It's so interesting. Like, if I wrote a book on Toronto, that's literally what I would focus on. is how people, like, stay in their quadrants. Yeah. <laughs> and it. It's uh, it's just an interesting phenomenon for me.
0: But we're spoiled in the sense that Toronto, in every quadrant, has pretty much what everybody needs oh, when yeah. you're in 100%. there. So that's part of the the problem and the the solution, if you will. And I'm a big fan of Toronto because I've tra- I've been traveled. I've, I am well traveled. I've been to other cities that either remind me of Toronto, or when I come back, I'm like, yes, I know I want to live here. Like, I, if I one day had an opportunity to live somewhere else, where would I live? Maybe Amsterdam, maybe New York, maybe even Seoul, South. Korea. But what I love about Toronto is it actually, because it's a newer city of sorts, compared to like New York, compared to like European cities, it kind of has taken a little bit of everything from other past cities experiences. And Toronto's definitely a melting pot before it was a melting pot before it even embraced the fact that it was a multicultural phenom. Toronto was built around that. And and it's kind of built from that. I always say Toronto is the love child of Amsterdam and New York. Interesting because it's got the New York vibes, city wise oh, and everyone's in into the pot culture, the cafes, you know, the kind of laid back aspect that you would get in Amsterdam and when you go to Amsterdam, you meet all the young people, nobody's from The Netherlands. Like, you you meet people like, oh, I'm from Greece. I'm from Portugal. I'm from – because all the countries around Amsterdam who are kind of this chilled out, you know, city mentality with the kind of stoner vibes and whatever you're into – go to Amsterdam, they move to Amsterdam, they go to school in Amsterdam. And Toronto is that same thing. All these countries from around the world, China, India, they're sending their youth here to study because we have great schools. It's a large enough city to kind of expand. We have kind of cultural you know experience so if somebody needed to s- to learn how to speak English through an, a Korean person or through an Indian like we have all these opportunities available and that's why I think Toronto to me is one of the best if not the best city in the world cuz the opportunity that it provides the reason I want to talk to you today is about the media industry and the opportunities of somebody that lives in Canada that lives in Toronto so I want to thank my guest Dan Spear and the Vice President and Director of Communications of The IWCC, the Independent Web Creators of Canada. My guest, Dan Spearin, you have seen it all. You're credited as one of Canada's first YouTube partners. Uh, Your past work is like a long list of Canadian media accomplishments from working with MySpace Canada, CBC Radio, Rogers TV, and more. But for those who don't know, you're currently working on Creator Town. Creator Town films and records in Girth Radio Studios. Uh, you have to talk about Girth Radio. I also want to talk about what a YouTube partner is.
1: Um, are you still working with YouTube directly? So, the YouTube partner back in the day uh, was when YouTube had no idea what it was doing. So, it was the very first thing. So, YouTube starts in 2005. I'm on it in 2006 and then i was doing like morning shows and things like that being like what's a youtuber dan and i would go on you know being like what youtube is so like how far we've <laughs> come right like it's just crazy now i'm here for to Webfest, and there's buffer festival in this fall that Corey runs and he was also an original youtuber so you'd get an email from an actual human being also how far we've changed in youtube you'd get an email from a human a, a guy named um George Strompolis and he would send you an email and it would be like, would you like to be a partner? And everyone knew what that email was. It was like a like if you were in the YouTube cult, if you will, at that time of creators. And it was the ability to monetize yourself. So that's all it was. It was like there was a handful of people taking, but it started in America and it started to move outwards after that. So when you're in Canada, you got that email, you're like, oh my God. And I had a television series at that time. And we got the email while we were about to launch a TV series. So it just felt like everything good. And we were having a good year. You know what I mean? You just, everything was going our way. And, uh, but what's funny about that was back in the day, Viacom was going to sue YouTube off the planet. That was the rumor, right? Like they they had tried to shut YouTube down for like putting all this music online and MTV saw them as a threat, obviously. And Viacom's a parent company of Comedy Central. And they were upset about the Daily Show clips and South Park and all of that stuff. So it was the early days of, you know, what was seen as piracy. Now we just, I think people have given up on trying to stop it in a lot of ways. You did just, there's the volume is too large to try to stop it entirely. So content ID has got a lot better since those days, but that's what YouTube Partner was. So what I did was I, I because I thought Viacom, because we th- we didn't know what was going to happen to YouTube in general, Google, you know, bought them So anyways, the notes of that conversation, the Wikipedia entry of that period of life was the idea that we went to television and started to try to match TV with web projects. You mentioned the MySpace thing. That's what that was about. It was like, I knew that iChannel, which was a TV channel in digital cable Siberia in Canada, they had a studio space, they had cameras and the floor director and all those things I needed to make content of a higher quality, but... I said, what if we partner you with MySpace so people my age can actually see what I'm making? So that's what that, that's what that came about. We did an election special. It's like the first multi-platform election special. And it was all based on millennial issues in 2008 and interviewed Jack Layton and, and did that whole thing. So that's where that whole idea came from though was trying to match the internet. So I left YouTube because I had so much other projects on the go. I didn't have time to like be a vlogger every day. And I never really vlogged, I did sketch comedy on YouTube, because I got tired of seeing the same six faces at the Riv and everywhere else in Toronto. Because at that point, it was sort of, I felt like there was sort of a lull in Canadian comedy. I mean, you know how that is, it's cycles, right? The stand up scene wasn't really booming, it was just sort of a slow period. So it seemed to make sense to go where everyone was, as opposed to just the same seven people in a room. And we were doing video sketch with Jared Sales and Nathan Fielder at the time anyway, in the same room. So Everybody had started from that. Little clique, they started to move to the internet. That was when I was like, I kind of started to miss YouTube. Ended up going back to it with The Young Turks, which was a news and politics channel. And that was when that happened. Well, I
0: want to talk about that. Probably now, today, known as one of the biggest online media networks. mm -hmm. Can you tell us what The Young Turks is and and your involvement
1: with them? Sure. The Young Turks network started out... Uh, way back in the day on, uh, on, um, serious radio as a, as a political politics show, as well as a YouTube series that shot video. And it was the little engine that could kind of story. It be, it was Cenk Uger with, you know, bringing in a couple of his friends, Steve O who's a producer and, you know, also now like runs the damn thing. <laughs> um, make sure the trains run on time. And it's a media organization that really stemmed from progressive politics in the Iraq War era, where, where is the media? Why aren't they covering the following things? And it was sort of a backlash against corporate media, a very progressive network. That's their sort of angle on the news. It's from a progressive bent and it's just grew. So YouTube, it grew with the platform to the point where... MCNs, multi-channel networks became a thing in the, you know, middle age of YouTube. Now they're almost passe, but yeah it's funny you say that because yeah. i feel that way well, it's they, just yeah. like a little overdone like how much well because they exploited it it became an exploitation factor they did they didn't put any caps on it so like something like a machinima who does you know a lot of video game culture that they like basically sent an email to anyone who once put a video on the internet about video games so it, was just, it didn't mean anything like there was no meaning for it's it like it became i used to i ended up calling it like avon for youtube where it was it was just like want to like come on our multi-channel network it's like a pyramid scheme. It was a pyramid scheme. And so, YouTube... But the, the Young Turks Network version of it, I liked because they kept it small. So, there was only 12 channels. Not anymore. In the network, in the MCN.
0: Seems like there's...
1: No, There's that's different things. So, there's a lot of shows on TYT. Okay. But in the multi-channel network, there was like half a dozen shows. It's still confusing to me. Even today, it just seems like either...
0: They're giving the name out and you'll look, I'll be doing some research and I'll say, oh, there's like a sports Young Turks network, but it's only got two videos on it or, you know, they're spreading thin the brand name. I don't, as somebody who's only heard of the Young Turks just being a part of the industry and just kind of glancing and not being a big politics guy, I've kind of just kind of, oh, it's an oversight for me. So having you in today, I'm 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 really interested to to talk about the Young Turks because it seems like they're still... Playing a large role in the kind of base that YouTube was, do you know
1: what you would say that their role and their purpose is these days? At one point, they decided they were going to come to Canada and they were going to conquer the universe. So they were just like there was whispers of them going to England. They were going to start up in Canada. We were like the affiliate, almost like you're talking about slapping your name on stuff. So if you want to think of it in old media terms, it'd be like how Buffalo's channel is from NBC, right? So they share resources and they and they. They share a sort of a marketing bent, and it was an it was a way to be on YouTube and get above the noise. So I don't think, from a viewer standpoint, outside of me having a similar viewpoint, sharing the ideals of the progressive movement, I don't think you would notice. You know what I mean? Like I don't think it was that relevant whether or not I was on TYT or not. Um, but you probably found me because I was on TYT. So, from a creator standpoint, it was really relevant because if 400 hours go up a minute on YouTube. How do you find me? Well, if I've already got a built-in audience that's willing to throw my content up on their page to be like, have you checked out this channel? It's a huge advantage. So, that was the reason for me why I did it. But I agree. From a viewership standpoint, you just see TYT slapped on a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. shows and you're like... It's confusing. So, yeah. And I mean, it's... The biggest problem for TYT, and I think all YouTube channels, is that you weren't building on television, right? You weren't building on something that had been around for 40 years. You were building on something that really took off in like 2007. So, nobody knew. Like, there was no model or blueprint because nobody was quite sure what it was going to be. Now, I think things have crystallized. So, getting back to the question of what TYT is now, I think TYT is left of MSNBC, in the states and i think that they're they're kind of taking up that space in the media culture for people who are are progressives but don't feel they have a home in the centrist democratic party so you, you really saw what they were in 2016 they were the bernie wing of american politics and i think that now they've got a organ they're loosely jank uger and kyle kalinsky who are also network jank's obviously the the founder of it but kyle kalinsky does a show in new york he's also on tyt network called secular talk and that show is basically the main like the main network partner that's outside of the la studios And they are part of this thing called Justice Democrats. So they're trying to move the Democratic Party to the left. So if somebody doesn't care about politics so much, I'll stop there. But it's that idea of a political voice for people who are not being fed sort of that content um, on mainstream sources and it seems so like it it's... would be the sjw network if oh, you will okay
0: and, and, and i get that I'm feeling from it yeah yeah only because i can understand when i see people react to their videos online just on forums and stuff or on facebook i can tell what is the attractiveness to their market to me it almost looks like a lo-fi news network. Like they're they're not necessarily crazy high budget nor do they have to be, and they're not Daily Show or Stephen Colbert, it's not a joke. Yeah. They take this all very, very seriously. And there's a lot of people who are younger but also um ingrained in politics and ingrained in the industries that they're involved in, they play a huge role. I mean, you look at their subscribe you look at um, the amount of hits or the, even the the runoff, even these kind of side shows that are that are people uh, are using the TYT name. It still seems like you attach TYT, you're going to get a base audience. You know, it's not different from when you first started with them. Do they still have a Canadian presence? Oh,
1: well, we left. Uh, <laughs> we, we kind of agreed to. I'm there behind the scenes for a couple of shows. Um, that are still on TYT network that are in the network. And I'm still considering doing like sort of correspondence stuff there for them, do a few videos, but uh, they, I can't talk too much out of school, but the bottom line was is the focus shifted for them. And I think rightly so there, there's only so much you can handle as an organization from a news standpoint. And I think they realized that, Despite wanting to to have an international presence, it made the most sense to start building within America and taking care of their house first. So the the focus shifted from what they really wanted to do, and I think 2016 put that into like a glaring perspective of when Trump got back in, uh, when Trump when the Republicans got back in, and Trump was the guy leading the charge. I definitely think that the focus narrowed to we have to save the democratic party from themselves. This is, you know, what they believe. And that became the focus. So, As a Canadian who kind of wanted to do... Our show was always a satirical take. Like, so you just brought up, they took it really seriously. My show did, but didn't. Like, I always saw myself as doing a comedic news show. And there's a couple of clips where I might have got a little bit more serious. But a lot of the times, like, our focus was there's got to be a joke in this bit somewhere. And it was clear to me that there wasn't an audience in that place as much as there used to be for that. And also, I wasn't as happy as other people were to be super hyper partisan. I wanted a larger conversation and I wanted a nuanced conversation. And I wasn't comfortable with Bernie Sanders t-shirts on the website for sale. I wasn't comfortable with a lot of this sort of pan- like basic stump speeches that were happening for candidates because I don't see the difference between that and Fox News in a lot of ways. And so, I got upset like being like, I don't get what we're doing here because is this not supposed to be challenging mainstream media? Well, if what we're saying is wrong about mainstream media is that we're not being partisan enough then that's not what i think is wrong with mainstream media do you think that there was also just a
0: disconnect for canadian audiences
1: i don't think they ever built a canadian audience like i think i had a show that people connected with us like vince and i who who is my producer and co-host vince and murthy like they connected to us the tyt thing that happened was interesting when i did american content when i did canadian content i was kind of out in the Ocean by myself. Mm. They provided some small marketing, but it was not what we expected going in. I'll put it that way. I didn't realize uh, you and Vince have been together for that long. Vince and I produced our first series. I brought Vince on as a producer for my first TV series in 2007. that's how we met. I met
0: uh, Vince at your creator
1: town. Yeah, yeah. He's the producer of that too. Yeah, no, we've stuck together since then. I don't believe, you know, talking about tips for creators and things like that. I'm a huge believer in the buddy system. Oh, yeah. Like if you don't have, it's really hard to do creative endeavors indie especially online if you don't have somebody to share the workload with it's just a lot i've seen people burn out because of they're not having ability to pivot to someone and go hey can you handle this i'm having an off week or you know so and so is getting married in my family or whatever people don't get it like there's no health plan in this in in independent creation there is no you know holiday package (laughs) so it's and you also
0: deal with especially your own ego And if you can't be with somebody who ultimately can just shut you up or tell you, hey, buddy, you know, you're not doing this the right way or, you know, this is how it affected these people and we can't do this again and they can't take that constructive criticism and it definitely helps the blow when it comes from a buddy. And I'm learning that. And as we build this network, it's amazing how you have to really be careful how friendly you get with people, how your expectations change. But if you already have a rapport with somebody, how things can become easy
1: You have to give people ownership, though, too. And I see that like a lot of the biggest problems I've seen with people who enter partnerships and they really want the control. I mean, there's a funny television series called Girl Boss that's out right now on Netflix that's dealing with that sort of independent startup mentality and how you get into trouble. There's an interesting part of that equation, though, because you have to give up control of something. Like, you have to give somebody ownership. And there's a lot of partnerships that I've seen dissolve because... It was really somebody's vision and they just needed help with the workload. But eventually that person's like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, why am I here? Because we all know it's not like money's rolling in in no, these endeavors. So, not at all. So, if you're not in it to build something together with somebody, it can become a real mess. And how can you build something by yourself? Like, I mean, you have to be really ahead
0: of the game or really able to just na- sit down and pump out, you know... 20 hours a day, 15 hours a day of your own stuff, do it yourself. All like, I mean, I personally am not able to do that, not ever wanting to be able to do that. And my projects have always been team-oriented because I'm only as good as myself. I'm never going to be as good as I am going to be with other people.
1: It's a good documentary to check out. We we're talking about the Young Trucks because what they did really was... Impressive, And I, I'm glad I was a part of it. And I'd still like to be a part of it. It's just about finding out what that is with the way the YouTube economy is working right their, now. Let's go their UK channel. Yeah, well, they're not going to, uh, you know, it's <laughs> like, do I want to make American content? It's really the question I have to ask myself. But the Bunch of Canadians, we're Commonwealth, we yeah. can go do it. Oh, yeah. If they were doing UK or Canada again, I would love it. It's just, uh, I think the focus is solely America. But what I was going to say is check out... Mad as hell, which is a documentary about their rise, and it, it's even if you're not into politics, you're not into you know it, progressive politics. It's still interesting from a model standpoint. You're seeing Ezra van try the alt right version of it here in Canada with Rebel Media. So that's th- an interesting dude. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's uh, a crazy. Try interesting not to remove
1: dude. yourself from like, oh dear God, these people are horrible, or I don't like what they have to say, and think of it if you're a creator more, and like, what are they doing that works? why does this work? It's a lot about finding your niche bubble and just like catering to them.
0: His shtick worked for like a second.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be in politics, especially, but you're seeing that more with web series and content. There's the game of how do you get the niche market? So whether that's bronies, whether that's people who love vinyl from 68 to 74 or something like whatever your niche, hyper niche is the better. It just, it's easier. It's, it's things that are mainstream, things that like, don't have a specific, like, why am I going here that I actually want to see succeed? Cause that's what I personally prefer, but it's so hard to get an article written about you. Well, What do you do? Well, I have a YouTube channel that has good shows on it. But if you're like, I have a YouTube channel that caters to LGBTQ content, that's a niche, right? And that is awesome. Because those voices weren't heard. And that's what's so amazing about the internet. But we haven't been able to figure out how do we broaden these and not just preach to the choir. How do we get more people involved? How do we find larger audiences? That's so
0: smart. It's true. You you watch YouTube channels almost to feed the... I don't know if it's the ego or like what you want to hear, right? Like you can like uh, cater to your needs so easily. And that's when I think it's interesting when you have these multi-million dollar YouTube stars who they, some of them had a great idea and they're working their way up or they just started their rants or these interesting different, ideas i like how that guy from uh, minecraft who's now got all these kids obsessed with him or even the whole issue lately with the daddy of five channel uh and pewdiepie and all these guys and i'm not a youtube guy i i don't
1: i'm a reddit guy i get all my news i get I don't all it out loud in 2017 <laughs>
0: well
1: i don't know if i feel safe in your apartment now why are you serious? I was being sarcastic, but are you, you don't know the... Are you unaware of the reputation of the Redditors?
0: Well, I mean, they're not any worse than um, 4 chan <laughs> if, that, if that's your bar, you're really in trouble. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that I, I'm i uh,
1: a Redditor any other way than I'm, I use it on the surface. Or I'm just teasing you. But I mean, definitely think that there's a, a right, alt right sort of new nazi-ish movement that's attached to reddit in the deep cavernous i agree but i I feel like if you go anywhere reddit's had some huge sexism problems though like they were part of gamergate they're part of the the fappening like if you don't like women you have a home on reddit and that was where i left reddit i couldn't deal yeah see i'm not that i i wasn't accusing you of that. i was just saying that
0: but as on the surface as far as getting information for sure i don't because Freq- Facebook is is almost the worst because like is worse than that in the sense that there's all these people that are voicing the same opinions, but you know exactly who they are. And that scares me even worse. With Reddit, you can like get away from that, right? If I, if I don't like a certain comment, if I don't like a certain user, if I don't like this, and just like Facebook, you can block them. But with Facebook, you can click on them and be like, oh my God, this is what this person looks like. This is their family. This is where they live. And these are the opinions they're openly voicing without you know, hiding. It's kind of scary. Where Reddit, it's just like, okay, I want my subreddits to be funny, awe, video, you know, that's it. And I keep it to what I like. Yeah, exactly. And I I can get the information, but I see the news, right? I see what comes up on the front page, you know, like the PewDiePie scandal, like the Daddy. And the Daddy of Five scandal, I was obsessed with, which I, I loved your Facebook post about it, by the way. And I think that We're getting to a point in the industry where YouTube is falling on its sword in a lot of ways with the whole, you know, all these people are coming together to kind of expose YouTube, even though they're a part of YouTube. So, they're kind of like, oh, we have to really care for the right people here. And also, at the same time, YouTube is like, oops, we didn't realize that, you know, we're showing the abuse of children, you know, but that also
1: opens the big can of worms. Like, what else don't you know that's going on YouTube? The era that we're in right now, why I joined the IWCC? Because I was just a creator. I got invited to be a panelist at the first Web Fest, And that's how I ended up ending up joining the organization. That what I'm seeing is really problematic. And the, and, the, and the problem for me is that we lived in a Silicon startup area, right? Where the idea was that we're going to monetize people. Like you are what's worth something. And that concept in itself. You're on Facebook, Facebook's not worth a damn. It's all of us that are worth the damn. It's that your aunt, your crazy aunt on Facebook that we always mock. That's the model of business. So, YouTube, you're talking about when you we, you just literally talked about Reddit as I I these are the news items that I see true, but it's also the tail wagging the dog in a lot of ways. It's the community and what they like. So, The problem for all these platforms is you have to constantly churn the community. You have to somehow top down, stick your fingers into things. Otherwise, you end up with what Reddit happened, right? They've had a ton of problems up top from the CEOs leaving sexism against, you know, people that they thought were changing Reddit. There are too many women on Reddit. All of these arguments that happen with their users on those platforms. And those issues sort of permeate the culture. What we think of as what is a YouTuber or what is Reddit, it becomes like any group of friends getting together, right? Cliques start to form. right? And what's scary about all of this, Daddy05 straight on through, and that rant on Facebook of mine was spawned by, you know, as an IWCC vice president, I have to go and chat to CBC and different people about these issues and try to provide clarity for people who are like 98% of the public who aren't spending their time on YouTube and understanding what's going on on the platforms. What we're doing, though, by allowing things to not have a systematic structure, by letting all of the great things that came out of like, do whatever you want, everybody, there's a flip side to that. And 10 years into the platform, we're seeing the dark side of the flip side of that. It's
0: funny that you say that because as somebody who's on the outside... I'm not a YouTube creator. I started this podcast network because I wanted to still work in an industry that I loved, but I couldn't work for the big names anymore. I just couldn't get anywhere personally. Uh, So when I look to YouTube and I look to Reddit, I look from an outside looking in. I just want to get what I want and walk away and feel good about it. and, And you're right. And you do see it. Like, I'm not denying any of these facts. But at the same time, it's like everywhere you turn, Facebook. Twitter, you know, social media in general. Not only is it a clique, not only is it a popularity competition, but as somebody who has no time for that bullshit, I'm just going to go into the internet. And I'm also one of those people that are like, I'm sick of the internet. Like I love the internet, but at the same time, it's like, sometimes I feel like, why do I need the internet? I feel like I I could do, you know, so many more things, you know, mentally, physically without it. I could go outside more, you know, there's all these opportunities that you're kind of glued. And then halfway through your week, you're like I fucking hate the internet like I just don't want to see these people on Facebook that's why I love certain aspects of it. And I feel like the best part of the internet, if you're capable of the technology, is to really cater what you want to see. You know, there's a lot of great apps, uh, like Chrome extensions, where you can like completely block people's news feeds and stuff. And they can only see what you want to see from certain people. And I'll do that sometime just as a breather or if I have to get work done or something. Just the fact that I have to cater to my needs tells me that, I feel like it's just like sometimes it's like high school again where you 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 want to be that social butterfly. You're either in a clique and you're loving it and you're either at the top of the totem pole or you're somewhere rising to the top or you're this outsider being like, "Oh, I like this part of the totem pole. No, I like this part of the." And I and I'll and I'll pick and choose because ultimately none of this affects me. I'm doing my own thing and I want to try to keep on doing my thing until we build something up. And that's how I want to Be asked to the party. I don't want to be in the party just because I'm already a part of the party. So, you know, when I ask you about the Young Turks, it's almost like you had an opportunity to be a part of the party, but then when you got in, you're like, oh, this is not the kind of party I wanted to be a part of.
1: It's not that. I actually really like what they're doing in a lot of ways. It's that. I just didn't have, like, I'm a Canadian. I, that's like the biggest thing with the Young Turks and us was that we were Canadian and I'm still Canadian. So it became an American focused thing. And I feel American satire is well taken care of in the States. I don't think they need, I have nothing to add to that take a penny tray. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Oliver, Noah, Bill Maher, Samantha B., all through the, like, down the list. Larry Wilmore's got a podcast. Everybody's got a podcast. Like, I just don't think you need Dan Spearin's take on American politics. sure. So that's part of it. But when I look at these things you're talking about, I you have to understand, like, I started as a YouTuber. Yeah, I've been on TV and radio, but I started on digital. My career has been digital, and I've seen what I helped build start going in a dark direction, and I don't like it. So there's part of me that I understand, like, as an individual, you, like, want to step away from things and go, I just want this part of things. But I worry about artistry, on a whole with the iwcc right i worry about what is this going to do to art what is it going to do to news and politics what is it going to do to society as a whole and like really quick so you're familiar with rick rubin the producer of the beastie boys of course he's okay. one of the best there is so rick rubin did a really good interview once recently where he said i loved punk rock but i grew up In a neighborhood where hip-hop was just in my school like that that the rumblings of that movement was starting when i was in high school he says if i lived in the modern era i'm not sure i would have ever got into hip-hop producing because i would have been able to find the reddit on punk i would have been able to find the youtubers that talked about like i could live in my bubble and never experience anything else because i knew at 16 i loved punk rock i'm just going to consume everything about that. And that was what the internet allows you. It allows you to live in those filter bubbles that we talk so much about now. And it almost becomes a cliche that people ignore, but it's so important still. The filter bubble living gives us Donald Trump. It gives us, you know, the comedians that don't like the pushback from, you know, what they would call social justice warriors. Like all of this is part of a media that is losing money and trying desperately to find niches that will click. It's part of the bigger problem of people aren't talking to one another, so society is getting more polarized. All of these things have to do with how we now look at our news and how we get our entertainment. It's through six degrees of yourself. And that sort of selfish lens is great sometimes, and we all do it. But there is an effect that it has on the toll of, you know, society and, the, and what we're going to have to deal with. Because real things need a community to deal with them. You need to talk to people who disagree with you. You need to do things. I mean, you don't have to in pop culture. You can like just the Beatles and spend your entire life now on the internet. And you still want to get through all of the information that there is about the Beatles, but it's a boring life. I just just want to clarify that. I think the internet's an amazing thing, but I, I don't like that we're not applying a media criticism to it as well as we should be. There just needs to be more critical thinking around what Facebook does. And the result of a Netflix model on the economics of art and all of these types of things. We don't teach that stuff. No.
0: The kids are born with an iPad in their hands and then they're born with Facebook in their brain and then they wonder why cyberbullying is like the leading cause of like suicide in young children. You know what I mean? It's just this idea that this social stigma created because of the internet is the root of the evil but at the same time it's like how else are we going to teach these kids how to adapt to technology and adapt to the world without showing them the evil side so that's why, why I, I thought I found it interesting I, I actually watched uh, 13 Reasons Why something I normally wouldn't uh, mostly because I'm just not a Selena Gomez production fan like I never thought I would be into it but I liked the subject matter and I stuck through it overall it wasn't the best show I've ever watched but the fact that this is their attempt. Selena Gomez, a young actress producer, this is her attempt to be like, okay, young people, if this is how you want to see this subject matter delivered, we'll deliver it to you in a, in a Netflix package. We'll help you get to the core of this problem. Sure, is, is, are we going to be 100% right? Probably not. But it's going to start this conversation. And it's funny, we always joke about starting the conversation. And I see every day and, and, and I approve of these things. You know, people on Facebook all the time share, copy this, this helpline or, or or whatever. And I'm all for that. But at the end of the day, how many of people are reaching out to their best friends, their buddy systems and being like, buddy? How do we really get you the help you need or what is going on or, or, or how are you? How's your family? You know, I, I think there's a major disconnect, especially in younger millennials. I, I'm a millennial, but, uh, you know... You're old man millennial like me. Uh, Yeah, that's just it. Like, we see the split in the generation. And as somebody who's starting this network, I don't want to talk too much about myself here, but the idea really is we're doing this to build this kind of community, this kind of, you know, introspective look on the industries that surround us and how they've affected us and how we are limited in our abilities to talk or voice our opinions or or start these conversations. And that's why I love podcasting. That's why I love radio. And I love this new wave form of radio. And we're starting these conversations and that's why you're doing creator town is ultimately you know the best way for the digital world especially our generation but to kind of say to the younger generations talk to each other more
1: you know even if it has to be done on a a digital platform i actually think that our generation so if you want to split the millennials into two which seems to be like the, the hip article of the month to do that but i actually don't think there's these mass disconnects like articles like to say there is um, demographics game. Like I, I was at the poster child for millennials in the, in the early 2000s and did a ton of punditry for it. It is what it is. Like, you know, it's demographics and people, it's good for news articles. But at the end of the day, chat to somebody who's 22. I think that people who are in their teens and their early 20s are actually way better adjusted to the internet than we were. They didn't have anything else to compare it to. So, there was something for them to latch onto, but they got super critical of it just by being on there. They're like, this is lame because I'm a teenager and, you know, I I get what this bullshit is. We got blindsided by it. It happened to us while we were in college, while we were in university, while we were trying to live our lives and build a life for ourselves. At the same time, a lot of us didn't have the opportunities, didn't have jobs, didn't have a lot to do. So, there was this sort of you know, work unemployed millennial that was on the internet and we got sucked into it. Sometimes people were, you know, escaping through their phones, but we remember a time when that wasn't a thing. I think it's fucked up our generation more than it has our part of millennial, like the first half of the millennial tale, more than it did the the latter. I think that we're the ones that got the most like, you know, sort of our compass got shifted. Well, 10 years ago, When I was in
0: university, I thought I was going to work for a major broadcaster. I thought, you know, I would be a lifer at the CBC or, you know, much music was my dream at the
1: time. right? Because everything got disrupted for us, whereas the 18-year-old entering the industry now kind of gets what YouTube is. Oh, yeah. They get the difference between what Facebook and YouTube are. In in 2007, I had no idea in 10 years where what YouTube, if A, it would have got sued into the ground by an old media company if they would run the world and now, you know, now you kind of get what everybody's place in it is, even hyper niching, you know, from in my world, where I worry about entertainment, right? Netflix, Amazon prime, you can already tell that Amazon prime has decided to be the art house cinema of the internet. Like what they buy, what they're buying, the types of shows they're buying are all of the like more hoity toity, Manchester by the sea art film Stuff versus it, and Woody Allen series went to Amazon Prime versus Netflix, which is doing Stranger Things and does things that are really broad in appeal. So it's like Netflix is your blockbuster, you know. Amazon Prime is going to be that corner store down the street that has the Fellini film. Like that's the old era, new era. But those kids that are entering the industry, entering school this year, they have the ability to look at things and go, okay, I'm probably not going to get a job at Chorus. I'm probably, you know, I might not get a job here. They can look at it. Whereas I think you and I, when we were in the mix of it, we had no clue what was going to happen. Is this going to go out of business? Every TV series, why I joined the IWCC, everything I've done so far in the industry, outside of like the Young Turks has gone out of business. The money's never going to be the same. The eyeballs are never going to have only seven options. Like it's never going back to the way it was. You're not going to have to do the pick and play options. So those digital cable channels I worked for fell apart because folks didn't have to choose them anymore. They had Netflix. They had thirty, you know, options a second on YouTube to that like appeals just to them. Like you talked about, you can now live like you just talked about on Reddit. I can pick punk rock and live solely on a diet of punk rock content and never be hungry again.
0: I like the idea of our generation kind of was insecure about media. And today with with like Snapchat, like I, when I first, heard about Facebook and started getting on it and now we're seeing all these like 10 year anniversaries of like Facebook you're like no this is not possible like it seems like so ingrained in us oh funny yeah yeah right you see all these memories from like 10 years ago you're like no 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 I haven't been on Facebook for fucking 10 years but look at these kids now who are in their early 20s I'm actually like just a quick side note I would love to figure out a a generational gap name for the millennials in our situation and like the younger millennials
1: maybe I'm just because I spend so much time on the internet and like lived this life I Feel way more connected to them than I do. Like when I've said this, there's a lot of these articles that are like some of them have more of a Gen X mentality. I definitely do not have a Gen X mentality,
0: right? I feel like when you separate us, uh, guys in our 30s, and you talk to generation of people in their 40s, there's a major disconnect. Sure, they're on Facebook, they're on a digital landscape, but it's it's a total. They don't care. They don't really. They they've lived their life a certain way for a lot longer without it. Where us, it's almost like half of our life. So it's an interesting turn of events for us, where these 20-year-olds How now... How do you feel differently,
1: though? Hold on, I'm really interested in this. How does Alex Ross feel differently than you think a 20-year-old feels? Like, what's the gap that well, you, I'll tell, you? I'll
0: tell you the other way. I find as somebody in their 30s, when I talk to people in their 40s, they're either obsessed with social media and digital media because they've kind of had to develop into it, or like most, they don't care enough. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where is the 20-year-olds, all they do is care. They don't watch television anymore. There's no terrestrial media anymore. The difference is not between like... Is uh, there terrestrial media for you, though? I don't... No, (laughs) there isn't. Okay. But I'm not on Snapchat. I'm not on a filtered kind of, you know, thirty second or, or less kind of medium. I still know I'm not watching television live. I mean, I, I personally do because I'm obsessed with radio and, and television. It's who I am. But I mean, I'm I think- you have
1: a reverence for terrestrial media. Would you not agree? absolutely right. but
0: I don't think the 20 year olds do no of course not but I'm just saying that I don't even I don't think really well but yeah. I, I, I think it's ingrained into me because I'm an old soul and like I, I love yeah, that's
1: like, not true I'm totally full of shit I totally do have a reference do for you? like a Letterman
0: and I don't yeah, know why exactly. I just said like, in movies and like, that's yeah. what I'm saying like Mary yeah. Tyler Moore or like laughing or like yeah, bizarre yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with the, the days of yesteryear because I think they did it the best because they for didn't sure. have they didn't have the restrictions we have now and I'm not even talking about restrictions technologically I'm just talking about mental physical like time periods Period. Like that's why Johnny Carson's the best. Like, there's nobody. Like, you look at Conan; he's crazy, he's funny, and stuff. But he has to be. Johnny Carson didn't have to be. It's funny
1: though because I spend so much time. What's really weird about that is I've actually found. I don't know how you feel about this, but I'll tell you two things about like the new era, right? Which is why I think a lot of times we put too much emphasis on like the difference in platforms. Like that, we get to we we dive down the McLuhan hole, and sometimes I think it gets silly. So when TV was television only. I didn't watch a lot of one hour dramas. I wasn't a TV guy. I loved film and I loved comedy. But I didn't spend, I didn't watch The West Wing when it was on television when I was younger. I didn't watch ER. I didn't watch... Same, same. But now that I, and Sopranos even, I didn't watch HBO hour-long dramas. I just wasn't on my radar. But as soon as the Netflix model happened, I've like consumed all of those shows because it's just accessible to me in a way. Yeah. And so in a lot of weird ways, I think that, for example, you just mentioned Johnny Carson. Outside of my aunt's... Or my grandparents who had, like, the best of video collection. I never saw Johnny Carson. I'm 34, Johnny Carson off the air in 92. I'm nine years old. I was not awake. <laughs> yeah. So, YouTube has been how I've consumed Dick Cavett and Johnny Carson. Exactly. And Me th- too. Me and too. And so, it's like, if it wasn't for YouTube, I wouldn't have been connected to terrestrial media. <laughs> and it's funny,
0: terrestrial media does have its resurgence. In, like, the block Netflix being blockbuster of today, that kind of thought. But the funny thing is, I love comedy, and I love kind of even... You could call generational comedians like Robin Williams, right? He he was from an older generation, but the younger generation, especially with Aladdin and and his break into the Disney world, really made him a kid's favorite too. And when I watch YouTube and I'm like, oh, I feel like Robin Williams, I want to watch some Robin Williams stuff. Yeah, you can watch the Conan stuff, you can watch the Letterman stuff, but go back, watch the Carson stuff, and you realize why these greats are still great in today's light and it takes that old school mentality of kind of just being who you are and that's the thing about Rob Williams he's the same person from the Carson era all the way now and that's why he's likable on so many different platforms the thing about platforms today is you have to be likable based on the platform do you can you add to that do you you know what i mean where you're kind of pigeonholing yourself like youtube especially like Instagram, like Snapchat. There's a reason why y- the youth today aren't watching. You know, The Sopranos. They aren't watching. It's funny you mentioned that because I just
1: started The Sopranos. I don't know if I agree with that. That's really interesting. I don't know if the youth today aren't. I don't think a lot of the youth today are doing that. Like, I think the fact of Friends is still a relevant meme like, It's like that would be is like that would be like us watching Mary Tyler Moore in the '90s. Like, which you know, I mean, outside of a Weezer reference, it wasn't really that relevant. But the the As the years go on, Friends becomes less and less of a reference. Let me give you two interesting little anecdotes about that. One is in 2005, I go to New York and it's my first trip to New York. So I was super excited. And uh, one of the things in New York, so I'm talking about when I just, for some reason, was like, I don't have a reverence for old media. I immediately (laughs) caught myself being like, what am I talking about? There's a television museum in New York. Yeah. And so there's a TV museum and you can go in. And I was obsessed with, there's two things I really wanted to see. Woody Allen did like a variety show special with like Liza Minnelli and stuff from the late 60s. Wow. And I was just like, I really want to see this train wreck because apparently it was a train wreck. And then I watched it and yeah, it was. And then the other thing that existed I really wanted to see was there was um, footage that was at the TV museum of Steve Allen interviewing Lenny Bruce right around the trial periods. And I really desperately wanted to see this because it wasn't on. Five months later, YouTube comes on like it all of a sudden appears like after i go to that tv museum and now youtube is a tv museum so like you can spend hours on youtube just watching like i listened to one of your podcasts with um uh jeremy woodcock and he was talking about charlie rose right and like all of those things you can watch now from like the 90s and like you can just watch all these archival interviews with people and spend your entire day doing that so, I want to bring this back because you Never Sleep says a lot of stand-up comics doing shows for it. And this is where I would love to just like, I'd love to come into you do one of your shows and just talk about stand-up comedy from the SJW standpoint. Yeah, talk blo- to Nick Beaton. It blows my freaking mind sometimes when I hear stand-ups. You're talking about platforms, right? You're completely right. What works on Vine, RAP Vine, what works on Snapchat, what works... On Twitter is not the same skill set. I love Twitter. So if you, if I had to kill all the other platforms and only keep one, I would take Twitter because it's my skill set, right? I'm a joke writer. I'm somebody who's a writer in general. I love news and politics and media. That's my go-to. Uh, Reddit was good for me. It got too swampy. (laughs) It got to, it it got to Trump 2016. So I've clearly found my thing. You know, I had fashion friends. Who love Instagram at the time or Tumblr, or I have feminist friends who love Tumblr. I have. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But we're going back to the stand up comedy thing. What always interests me about that is how this is going back to our generation being slow on the uptick. I think a lot of our generation got confused by it, whereas the younger kids understand what park is what in what neighborhood, where they get where they're going where, because it sort of established itself by the time they became of consciousness. Whereas with us, it was building and we weren't sure what train we were on to mix a ton of metaphors. The standup situation though, is all these stand-ups got in like the last five years, you know, we're getting so much trouble on Twitter. And it was so weird to me because I went to Humber. And one of the things going back to your history conversation, right? I had that problem at Humber college. I'm a comedy nerd. So, I love a ton of stuff from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and the only reason why I did the CBC radio special was because a lot of my heroes, George Carlin included, started out on radio, so I desperately wanted to do a radio comedy special, like, with drama and sound effects, and because that sounded awesome to me because I'm a thousand years old. When I did that though, when I did these things, when I was at Humber, when I started out and came to Toronto, I thought it was going to be in a room of people who were fellow comedy nerds and nobody knew who Milton Burrow was. Nobody knew sure. who Jack... So all these kids that I'm surrounded by are like, Jackass is the best comedic show on television. <laughs> and I felt really isolated. I didn't feel I fit into that community. I didn't feel like, I felt like the reference base didn't go past Dana Carvey era SNL. And I was really disappointed by it because I wanted to have these long, interesting conversations with people. And maybe it just took them longer to get into that stuff. I have no idea. But when I talked to comedians and when we got taught at Humber, the 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 three things we did get taught, it was from like road comics like Larry Horowitz and stuff, right? And they would talk about like having, playing different rooms. And it's so weird to me that the comedians seem to be the last people to catch on to what you just articulately explained. There's different personas for different rooms. That's comedy 101. You don't do the same set for the Dentist Association that you do at 1230 at night at an open mic. Like you don't do the same set for the Legion Hall that you do for Just for Laughs. That's a comedy, like it's, Ingrained in you as a comic to like know the audience, read the audience, and we're and they're terrible at it on when it comes to the internet because they view Twitter as like their personal notepad. I'm just gonna say this thing out to millions of people, and what do you mean you're upset at me? Because it's not your personal notepad, it's a room, everything is a room. And it's so weird to me. Like, I I always find that funny. Like, when Gilbert Godfrey got in trouble... Geico or what? No, Yeah, well, he lost his... he lost his Aflac thing. And the comedians, like... Geico. Different animal. Yeah, different... Different... Voiced animal. Different voiced animal. But, like, I couldn't believe that we'd come from an era of, like... I was shocked. I was shocked when that happened. Lenny Bruce... And like Bill Hicks and all of the comedians, comedians that people cite. But all of a sudden we're like upset because a guy lost his corporate sponsorship deal. As soon as you take corporate money and you're voicing a mascot... You can't, like, all of a sudden throw your hands up in the air and be like, I can't believe they were sensitive to, to like, really racy jokes. It's I get like,
0: that. And we're,
1: we're, we're, we see that a lot today with sponsors.
0: You know, right. you're supposed to keep up. Uh, or even, like, the uh, F-I-T-H-P guy who was on right, right, the, right. right, from that Canadian company who got a slap on the wrist. Like, I get that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it was a two, TMI, too soon, or sorry, too soon. Rather, you know, Gilfer- Gilbert Gottfried said the joke right away. He didn't let any kind of.
1: But my point is, is that's not free speech. You're, I mean, I mean, I bet he would argue that. He shouldn't Because nobody kicked him off Twitter You can't you're, you're the face of a corporate company You're getting paid millions of dollars Well, maybe not Maybe thousands of dollars And you're just a voice I don't know I just feel like there's. The, but you, you know I agree and saying? I disagree I totally I totally it, It's a gray area Like this is not 1975 You, Lenny can't get up at the but Purple Onion is This is, is the, like Is you, it a nanny state that we're living no. in? No It's that As soon as you take tons of money From like an insurance company sure. To voice their mascot You have
0: to change the way yeah. you, you You represent you you yourself. can't
1: make jokes about thousands of people dying. Sure. Like, it's sure. not rocket
0: science. So, but do you think he could have done that, but just not on Twitter? Maybe, I guess, keep it to the stand up, keep yeah. it to the stage kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But I
1: also think once you take that, if once you take a hundred thousand dollar contract to be the face or voice of a company, then you have to realize that there are downsides to taking the I'm, devil's I'm money. I'm so torn <laughs> because I got into the industry as my
0: God and savior is Howard Stern. So when I was eight, in the car, going to and from school, my parents always had raunchy Howard Stern, and he was kind of the anti-establishment. Sponsors, you don't like what I'm saying or how I'm saying it, and he was bigger than Twitter, let's be honest. And I kind of, I always joke, like if I had an opportunity to to have a roundtable of people that I admired in their work, it would be Howard Stern, Neil Young, Gordon Ramsay, Kanye West. That's the dinner I would want to have because it's this mentality of I'm going to do what I do I'm either going to ride the wave that is I'm either creating or, or continuing on. And it's only going to be a matter of time where sponsors drop, but sponsors get added or I get seen for something or, you know, and I, and I like that mentality. I like to kind of keep pushing, you know, everyone's wrong. We always do, everyone does stupid shit. I'm sorry. I don't care if you're in our position, just starting your experience. We make mistakes. And, And I like the saying, it's an anonymous saying, you don't have to be the same person you are or were five minutes ago. And people learn from this the, the mistakes, or they don't, and they grow, or they don't, and the either the industry grows and you grow with them, or you don't. And I and I feel like ultimately the punishment is going to come from maybe not. Today with with fucking corporate sponsors like I like I feel for Gilbert Gottfried like I feel for the fact that the guy is a comedian and he, he should have some sort of you know filter in the sense that maybe it was too soon keep it to the stage whatever but at the same time it's like he made one mistake and that's going to cost him because he's a comedian well no because he has a corporate sponsorship I get it I get it <laughs> it's not that, like to me that's not, not, not if he lost, lost of a gig uh, uh, then I'd get it but like it's dude, not good enough for me I'm sorry I I, I think a company that is able to afford Gilbert Godfrey, a comedian, they are knowledgeable of his career, of what he says. Like, come on. that The aristocrats came out before that guy, um, Affleck commercial, and you're telling me
1: you haven't heard... But they're no, the, the issue is never about the joke, and that's what I don't... Like, the issue for a lot of these things is about when you're a corporate sponsor person like when you are repping repping a company you're the face of that company so they're obviously okay with dirty jokes what they're not okay with is the controversy that surrounds it so first of all let's back up to like why the hell they got gilbert godfrey when they could have got anybody else to be the voice of that
0: price cap and it's a recognizable voice and it's a duck gilbert godfrey literally looks and walks around and talks around like a
1: duck sure but my point is is like I thought that was kind of stupid on their part to like get in bed with. They clearly didn't know him from anything outside of mainstream. I'm sorry, I
0: I disagree. Come on, you're telling me
1: that you there's not one person on that chair that's
0: been like, oh, have you seen the aristocrats? You ever seen this My
1: issue with all this though is is that I don't have this viewpoint as a comic. I think we should be better writers. I think we should get into this more and have these conversations. I don't get why we're so afraid of all the pushback. That social media has, you know, actually democratized things where people that are offended can say, whoa, like why aren't you doing this smarter i like that i think it makes people double you know think i'm sorry when i came to toronto it was like kenny robinson had a room everything else super white and male and I think the Toronto comedy scene has suffered because of that. I don't think the perspective, the perspective gets very much like a boys club. I think it gets very insular. And I think this stuff's helping comedy get more. Let's have a conversation. And all these people that like, I hate social media. I want to turn it off. You're basically saying that you don't want to deal with criticism or that you don't want a two-way conversation with your audience. And I don't get that from the YouTuber, I guess, because I that's part of what I want. I want my audience to have... A- conversation Uh, part of the problem is
0: you can't have a conversation when things are so instant and things are mostly hidden behind the computer screen the people
1: but wait let me ask you this do you think gilbert does that joke if he gets paid to do a dinner for affleck or if he gets paid to do like what the 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 misunderstanding in the comedy community is that you think that everything is nine o'clock at yuck's I agree, and I disagree. I don't know. But at the same
0: time, if Gilbert is paid to do a gig to be Gilbert Gottfried, whether it's Twitter, whether it's a corporate gig or otherwise, he's Gilbert Gottfried. Gottfried. Yes, he, is there a time and place for certain jokes? Absolutely. But if I hire Kenny Robinson to do my corporate gig for for my dentist association, I want Kenny Robinson to be Kenny Robinson. It's my fault as the organizer right. to hire somebody sure, thinking that. that I'm going to get somebody else because of the situation. And and that's a thing about artistry. Why would I be interested in Gilbert Gottfried if I didn't like him for his overall artistry? And I think either these corporate people are like, oh, the voice is all that's we want. All I think that is, yeah. They're, they just want, oh, we just wanted the voice. We didn't want the backlash Agreed. we were going to get. And, that, and then they, they're like, oh, I guess we got to
1: back out or we're going right. to suffer.
0: But I bet if they stuck it out with him, nothing would have happened.
1: No, I disagree. I think you would have got fired eventually because they were like, what are we doing here? Wow. And that's my point is like, I just think there's right fits. Like if you sign a deal, like my problem with the with, where the free speech argument has gone is that it's gone to a place where it's silly almost. Like there is real importance. Important free speech issues like Aaron Schwartz fought for and the internet people, you know, the folks that are trying to keep the internet free and making sure that Google doesn't own search results for humankind. Like or you have to pay Google for right, your search That's, that's a so, free speech issue. Yeah, that the, is a huge issue. The issue of like whether or not you can take hundreds of thousands of dollars from a company to voice a duck. Is like for me on my list of free speech that this is going back a few years, but it seemed to be the thing that sparked all comedians thinking, you know, like the Asian joke that Colbert made that cancel Colbert the first time around. So, and, and, um, the activist, I can't think of her first name, Park is her last name. She started a campaign to cancel Colbert, which I didn't agree with, but I also thought the joke on Twitter was terribly worded like they the joke made you have to understand what the sketch was on that night's program which isn't how twitter works so it's like the wrong use of a room to me is an old school comedy problem i know we've gone off on this tangent but like
0: and i'll, and I'll bring us back in yeah. Yeah.
1: especially considering we're using references from like over
0: five years ago let's talk about colbert recently making those yeah. comments about calling trump putin's cockhole or whatever yeah. you know what i mean and that was a huge uprising and i i was upset about that i'm like come on this guy is rooting for america he's almost like the young turks in a lot of way but like the opposite in in the sense that he's like rooting for the change in a positive way but i i in the sense that you know
1: i'm getting a vibe that you're not a fan of the social justice movement alex <laughs> Should we, should we chat about that or do we well, want no. That's another podcast? I
0: just think that, uh, there's too many people that are preaching and not enough people doing action. And I, and I, and I, I'm all about action gotcha. and not about preaching. That's all I'm saying. So there's Too many angry voices, like screaming into the darkness for you. Yeah. And I, and I want to help. That's again, this sure. is why I'm doing this. You know what I mean? Like, like I, when you talk about, you want to talk to somebody about this, the perfect person to talk about is Nick Beden because he gets it. And he, I, I Honestly, Nick Beaton could be the next late-night television host if someone actually wanted somebody who was clear, forward-thinking, and really just shut down the bullshit. And that's what I like about Colbert. He shuts down the bullshit. And that's what I like about the Young Turks. There is no bullshit. It's kind of like a straight shooting. Like right. They have a, They have their method of madness. So when I say to you, like, if you're interested yeah. in actually talking about this with somebody, because I'm not the person to talk about. That's the problem with with – what my role is here. Oh, totally. No, you know, no. I'm not the right person, I and I never say I am. I'm not an SJW. I'm not on the other side either. I'm kind of just floating, and I like that. Which I that. think is the
1: majority Absolutely. of people, and I think that that's where, why I care about it is because it all stems back to what we do at the IWCC, which is, like, you've got to talk about what the effects are of how the filter bubble is working, and what the effects are of Twitter, and and how these so whether you want to you know you want to call them torch mobs or whatever you want to call them, right? This is all because of how we're using these platforms and how we're interacting with, with the internet. And that's where I think people don't think about it enough. And a lot of times I hear, whether it's comics or whether it's anybody else who's upset about this group of people thinks that, why is everybody trying to silence free speech or whatever? And a lot of the times it's just media clickbait because they know it riles people up. And there's like six people who really care. And that's like a part of the like issue for... And, right, and, and all press is good press and, and yeah. keep getting keep burning that fire. And- that bear thing you just brought up, I'm on was positive. That's like eighty-five percent Colbert's people being like, smart "Can you believe this?" Because yeah. FCC, when you when you make a complaint, right? Like if Granny from Idaho phones in, they legally have to look into it. Like that's their job. So the idea of like Colbert's going to get in trouble, I'm skeptical. Media
0: strategy 101 yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I'll tell you a couple more examples of that that are Toronto based. Sure, um, because I agree. I, I think Colbert's people are so smart and they know how the ratings work and they know how to get more ratings and and
1: if they piss off enough trump supporters trump supporters will watch him just to be like what is he going to say about trump well you and i talked about you know letterman and, and carson so you're probably you share the same for some reason i still share a reverence for for late night television even though oh yeah Kimmel. i don't like a lot most of it now i like kim but i'm still kind of obsessed with watching it uh, but like Fallon was king of everything, right? He had he had figured out how to YouTube everything, and he figured out how to make that variety show for young people. Whether you like it or not, it's a whole other conversation about where you fall in the in the stand up mentality or the comedy mentality. But he they smelled blood in the water, right? So as soon as he did that interview with Trump colbert's people were like we're gonna have trump for four years fallon did the like hair tussle thing there's gonna be like you saw the ratings like colbert was at the point where people are like who's going to replace colbert and now we're at a point where it's neck and neck all the time he's buying
0: pizza every time his ratings beat fallon that's the whole shtick now and and it's almost become more about that than anything else it's it's back to the ratings war which is great for television and, and late night television but Late Night Television isn't Late Night Television anymore. It's the next day YouTube channel show. You know what I mean? Like I don't watch Colbert live. I don't watch. Maybe if there's a guest on it, I happen to be watching and it's it's interesting, like after isn't it it's a yeah. sports game I or like something. I've never seen found at 11:30. I'm in bed or I'm not in bed or I'm on the internet I'm or night I'm out. video I'm games. I just don't watch it. yeah, I just don't watch it. if I am watching it it's it's definitely on YouTube. Uh, but my my last point that I wanted to bring up um, just about this whole you know, the voices that we're, we're representing here, you know, especially in, in Toronto, there's two big examples that happened kind of recently. One of oh, them, right, yeah. one of them was, uh, this was about last year, uh, on a TTC streetcar, there was a guy dressed in like kind of construction gear who started this big racist rant for people to kind of like film all of a sudden. There was like all these issues on the TTC of like, people having racist rants or or like sexual issues yeah. and there was this one guy who was in construction gear but he was wearing these large thick frame glasses and i listened to am radio a lot and mike stafford from am 640 was like no this is a clearly a ploy, Or this is some sort of fake news that's going out that some art student or somebody from the students are trying to do. Because first of all, this construction guy has got the thickest rim glasses I've ever seen. Doesn't look the part. Barely had any stickers. His hard hat was like clean. Like all these things I would never have caught. And it's all, all about the idea that we'll do something extreme like Colbert saying, you know, Putin. Wait, I don't know this story though. Like so this. how does this story
1: end? Was it somebody? There was no ending. Okay, there was no
0: ending. That's the only. Which is why I'm going to give a second example. That's a lot better. But the idea that so we, you think it was a staged thing to like? Ab- ab- absolutely, somebody's going
1: full Kaufman on somebody it. Somebody
0: was trying to do v- something viral. Yeah. Someone's trying to get hits. All press is good press. And I think they didn't get enough or the kind of story kind of went under really quick. But I think it was a bunch of students or, or somebody with the internet that just wanted to be like, hey, let's try to do a bunch of wacky things that are going to get people in public places filming us. And therefore, we get famous without having to do every that ourselves. Young, I don't
1: say this, I, don't, I won't put anybody else in it, but I know every white, young, male comic, I think, goes through an Andy Kaufman stage. Where, not everybody, but a good portion of us. I know I did. And you want to, like, push buttons and be that societal, like, you know... And what people never look about, because I don't think they read read the autobiographies or they or sorry, read the biographies or read, you know, what Zmuda wrote about him or anything like that. But you don't realize, like, he went through, like, serious depression and serious problems and, like, oh, and if he had a lived, I'm not sure what his career would have been because he got... There was a huge downside to all of his prodding right and I, I always think it's funny like there's guys in toronto the comedy scene everybody knows like brov who does like you know who was toronto batman for a while and, and that idea and you could see that those things took a toll on him especially Yeah, you yeah. can take like you can only do that andy kaufman shtick for so long and in, in, you could do it in the tv era because you didn't get like andy kaufman had no means of getting twitter yelling at him well, like 24 7 it. now it's like it's a completely different thing i don't think people talking about not getting platforms I don't think those comics understand the blowback that's coming their way.
0: Well, somebody like Toronto Batman, especially, you know, where there's controversy, there, is, there was violence that he was, you know, inciting, yeah. there was, you know, a, a point where his safety was, was questionable. And same with Andy Kaufman, if you yeah, want to make that reference. Sure. But at the end, in the end of the day, it was new and exciting in the 70s when Andy Kaufman did it. Now it's like, oh, are you okay? Like, this, right, there's right. An, is there an issue here that we have to figure out? And because of social media, it's easy for Toronto Batman to be like, guys, I still have 500 people that are willing to listen to me or talk to me. Is this a career that I'm still the other
1: like, thing too, right, working if, on? The other thing, too, that I always think is funny is, is that people don't realize that the – old school Andy Warhol 15 minutes thing has been sped up a lot so you don't get 15 minutes anymore like think about Nicole Ah, that's so funny Nicole Arbor right like boom on the view right because she did a anti-fat people video right and you know she would say it's just it was just satire I I don't like her Well, whether you like her or not, the point is, is like, I think she's back to where she was before. Like, it was just sort of like... A lateral movement almost. Yeah. Like, it's like you can get it for five seconds, but then most people remember you as that awful person. Like, you don't get the redemption that Kaufman got by having a top-down model where television could anoint you again as you're okay. Yeah, that's right. Lauren Michaels could remake you. Nowadays, it's just like you fall off. YouTube or Twitter and we never hear from you again. Right.
0: Or we bring you back to life because we love that kind of success story, you know, like those old reality TV shows or those Dr. Drew shows, like those people, part of their celebrity was their downfall and now their rise back to fame. Like Everybody loves that kind of story. But with Andy Kaufman, you know, if he didn't die, would that have caught up to him? Would he still be able to be doing that stuff? Not necessarily today, but in the 80s? Michael Moore, right?
1: Like, is a good example of like somebody who would do stunt-like things in his movies and comedy and now you watch a Michael Moore documentary and there's so much less of that because he, everyone knows who he is so you can't he can't get away with the anonymity. like nobody knew who Tony Clifton was but like give that a few more years and like, you know everyone knows Tony Clifton sort of too right so it's that there's a shelf life for that style but with Michael Moore i have to say because he's kind of aware of that yeah like his last
0: special or his last film if you want to call it was good for what it was yeah because he could change is what i was saying that's like, right if, if he you adapted. can't yeah you, you can't stay in that right andy kaufman there's yeah. no adaptation you either adapt to andy kaufman or yeah. he dies you know yeah. what i mean and just for the record he's not dead he tupac and elvis are chilling are in yeah, like yeah. boca raton somewhere for sure I want to get back to Canadian digital content, sure. just just to kind of transition uh, and end off with the Young Turks and stuff. I just want to know what are some of your standout interviews, videos, or go-to interviews that you're most proud of, not even just from the Young Turks, but, you know, up to today. What are some standouts? So, when the, people can go
1: and check you out on the internet, what are the ones that you're the most proud of? We've hidden a lot of those things. That's really interesting. I, I've, like, privated some stuff, some stuff's on the internet still. The stuff that's still on the internet um, that I think is really interesting to look at is there's a a conversation with jank and i sat down and it was just around post rob ford and it's an interesting interview to watch because it's pre-trump and so we're talking about like chris christie and jeb bush and like it's 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 2014 ish and so i was i was obsessed in that era with what is happening to our politics, like the leaders that we're electing are not the strongest members of our team. They're people who are really good at getting attention. So, the Rob Ford thing was obviously like a great foreshadow for a lot of different places that you've seen train wrecks get elected. And I mean, don't get me wrong, there was train wrecks elected before Rob too, but that was an interview that I think people should take a look at just because it's not that long, but it's an interesting uh, look into where America is going. And even Jank, I don't think totally saw it coming or expected that sort of level. You know, he compared it to George W. Bush at the time of that interview. And, I'm, and I And you can see me in the interview kind of going, not the same thing. Like, you, you don't understand. And then Trump now, I think they clearly understand. <laughs> yeah. They, they, I, and it's funny you say that because there's
0: been and always will be a disconnect for, you know, I think the Rob Ford thing because of Jimmy Kimmel is the only real taste that Americans have ever got of like a scandalous political figure from Canada Yeah, where, you know, it it happens in the States like every other weekend on Twitter, especially this funny thing about, about social media. And another thing I, I just want to quickly just like another quick sign. I wanted to, my second example was actually about kind of this press and, and how people are just fighting over the internet and not really coming out and doing anything about it. Just like that, uh, Internet try hard on the the streetcar I mentioned. The second one that's most recent is Filth City, the Danny Polishuk and Andy King film about Hogtown, this kind of loosely based on yep. Rob Ford. Yeah. And all the black the backlash they got from Ford supporters, but in the end of the day, nobody came to protest. Nobody's trying to shut them down. And all it did was fire been build on that fire that they had created yeah and, you know Larue's
1: is going to be at to webfest this year talking about gail pile and talking about those kinds of things and i think that that's a really interesting phase that we're entering into when you're trying to get air for your for art. like let's let's be honest like the arts beats in canada are not fantastic they're underfunded there's only like usually like one arts reviewer so film reviewers trying to get a review of an indie film is so hard so you you know the way to get above water is to do stuff like they just did with yeah f- and th- we can argue that at another time about like the repercussions of trying to stick your flagpole constantly in controversial things just to get attention but i mean michael at the moore end of- did that yeah i mean it's it depends i think the problem for that film that i'd love to have a conversation with those guys about and is that i'm not sure whether they had a message with that movie and that's where like michael moore is clearly you could argue is almost propaganda right whereas that movie i think was just supposed to be a funny comedy and so i think i'd be really interested in how that film got framed in the press where they at the end of the day are they just thrilled they got press or are they actually now kind of like oh now we're the guys that like took swings at a man who died of cancer. Like, how do we feel? I saw the film. Yeah. Uh, It is clearly just a comedy. No, I'm not saying what the actual film is. I'm saying most most people, let's be real, most people would have seen the press but probably won't see the movie. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of the people will just see that Toronto star that Doug Ford said blank or this movie's about. And the way that it got framed in the press and like the six o'clock news was, you know, is this in bad taste? So I'm always interested, like whether it's it's Chris Morris and Four Lions and doing the day to day and Brass Eye in the UK, Bill Hicks, whatever it is. I'm always curious about how people' psyche shapes after that. it's great on paper, but how did you feel after all of it went right. down? Do you feel like, oh, am I part of the problem? Or am I part of the exploitation, or and is ulti- the media wrong?
0: Ultimately, yeah. Ultimately, I feel because they did get their voice out there, yeah. the Larue guys, you know, and it seems like. They were not necessarily taking advantage, but they were. Oh, I don't think they were either. No, yeah. no, it was topical. Yeah. Right. And, and Toronto needs an independent film scene more than anybody, considering we're the home of Tiff. Yep. Um, so these guys. Does Tiff know that though? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> dude, we gotta, we gotta be careful because <laughs> we could just spend like fucking hours about this yeah. shitting on the, the, these kind of.
1: I don't agree that it's shitting though. I think that there's like actual cri- no, critical. I, I, yeah. I, I know
0: what you're saying. I don't believe it's shitting on in a negative way it's a it's a kind of bringing to light sure. at, in a joking way shitting on because it's true we you and i were striving to create these roles for sure amongst the tiffs and that's what i feel like filth city was just trying to do they're just trying to be like hey toronto if you want an independent film scene this is how it has to happen it has to be socially and connected. tell our own stories
1: like and tell our own stories it's funny like if america had rob ford there would have been 18 movies by Christmas, right? That's like, it shows you like, what I thought was really interesting about, was with, which about Phil City was that there was such a shock that somebody did that which is sort of cutely Canadian, right? Like, oh my heavens, <laughs> I have the vapors. It's like, really? Like, we had a guy who literally talked about, you know, eating pussy and was every day falling down at City Hall, essentially, and you didn't think anyone was going to turn that into a film. All the like, while,
0: <laughs> you know, like, we're getting right.
1: weekend updates
0: about what Andy Wiener did.
1: Right. Anthony you know, Wiener was like, Anthony on Wiener. like every, yeah. So, it's just, it's so silly to me that we thought that people wouldn't, make that but you're absolutely right and let me be clear I wasn't criticizing those guys at all but when the media gets a hold of stuff I'm always interested in how people feel when they come out the other side of it because don't get don't get me wrong at all I made tons of money off of Rob Ford because of YouTube as soon as that crack scandal hit and America found my videos I made real money off of all of those things. Like Rob was supposed to be on our show. You asked me about interviews. Rob's the great one that got away because Rob and his people were like, we're going to, let's get you guys because they wanted the youth vote. We were doing an election special. They said, let's get you guys on a bus and uh, we'll we'll cruise through the, the village, like the gate village in Toronto. And, I, and we went, we would love that. And I think someone Googled me and at the time there was tons of you know evidence that i was not on team ford i see so we got there that day we were waiting for them and they stood us up and we called and we were like what happened guys like oh rob's not feeling well okay that's happened to me twice with with conservative candidates all of a sudden i think one of their staffers was like great a youth special and then they like went to the google machine and went oops so who was the second one somebody that nobody would know but it was somebody who got into big trouble in Canadian politics. eventually her name is helena georgis and she was just coming on to give conservative opinion on one of my talk shows in 2008 and uh she backed out who are the private videos
0: that we're not gonna be able to see anymore Uh, There
1: might still be up so the best there's two interviews that i really like so i've done interviews with like people who are a little bit more famous but they're not my favorite interviews my favorite interviews are David Miller, right after the G20. So, he's still in office. He's literally out the door, which if you're out there and you want to do a podcast and you want to do interviews and you're doing politicians, find the people who are almost out the door because they're they kind of pissed because the knives have been at them for so long and it's almost a catharsis. You can get them to be really honest. Um, And that was one of my favorite interviews because I flat out said to him, like, what the hell happened? With this G twenty and like what's going on with Bill Blair and he defended him and was like at least he's you know it could have been worse if it, imagine if it was Fintino and I went back and said like that's not my bar um and we got into it and at the same time we were also we had a good conversation so that's probably like my favorite interview that I've done I talked to Jack Layton in two thousand eight and I don't know if it's as interesting for the viewer but it was super interesting for me because I sat down with him and Olivia wow. And she was fantastic because she wasn't running for anything besides MP. He was the leader of the party and was stiff and not fun to interview. Yeah. And then Olivia runs a few years later, and it's the exact opposite. As soon as Olivia oh, the wow, yeah. from there, it was like, I might as well talk to a wall. So it, it's interesting when you have politicians. My favorite interview from a Canadian standpoint that it's not politics was Colin Mockery came on the show. We did a show in 2010 that was the first version of Truth Mashup that aired on Rogers after the Skechersons show. And it was shows that we would take on topics. So we took on Canadian television, so the idea of shitting on the industry. We interviewed the guys from Pure Ownage, and we interviewed Colin. So, it was kind of like the generational gap. But at the same time, like, why do we have such a struggle in building our own culture here? Why is this such a problem? And Colin just offered a lot of great insight. And that part of that's on the internet. But we should I should go to the vault and just start dumping stuff again. Why don't you? Uh, just because, it, honestly, because at the time when I, swa- when I went from television back to YouTube, I was just so swamped with work and doing new stuff that I just... The idea of turning things around in that YouTube model for the Young Turks that's the thing that kills you because that's the model, right? Tons and tons of content every day.
0: Yeah, and it's gotten to a point where now we're complaining that YouTube has spread itself too thin, there's too much. Like, you made a comment about how, like, billions of hours of content are on...
1: Yeah, like, there's... so. The issue of YouTube in general is, and this is what for me, like from a career standpoint, I think a lot of creators are thinking about it. When I talk to independent creators now at the IWCC when we hold events, it's really interesting to see how Netflix has changed the game because we had so many people wanting to do web series and independent content. And because the view counts out there and because there's so much content, people are not... Going to YouTube, they're going to Snapchat and they're going to Instagram because the analytics are hidden a little bit better and there's a little bit better discovery on those platforms. Whereas, or it's just about if you're popular, you can manage it. Whereas, when you start a YouTube channel and you only get like 15 views on a video, people very quickly see, like, oh, this isn't worthy. And that's the problem in this era that we haven't talked about. I mean, it's existed since television ratings, but there's a real problem with it. Like, if you look at a video and it doesn't have a lot, views people judge it people think it's not good like there's this bullshit idea that all of the good content rises to the top and that's how things go viral which is completely inaccurate but that's what we're trying to find for creators right like and this year at webfest 2 we're trying to have this youtube panel talk and you're coming in to talk about podcasting and i'm trying to find people who are doing this you know every day where why let's avoid the 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 traps that no one told me like we learned oh my gosh yeah um, because I really want to get new voices out there. And I think Courtney and Nick at WebFest have done like a great job in putting together the programming, especially from the industry side of things. So like Crave's coming in to talk to people and talking about what they're going to do, what's their Netflixian model and, yeah, uh, and all that. They're interesting.
0: I like what they're doing and they have Letterkenny to ride on yeah. right now. So there's a lot of good stuff happening for so them. So it's like,
1: where's all this going, right? Like that's what interests Well, that brings me to some more questions
0: I have. Yeah. You know, what do you feel like your voice Dan Spearin, your voice in Canadian digital content. We all have a role or want to have a role. What's yours?
1: I think my voice is somebody who has spent time in the industry on both sides of it. I'm trying to bring my old man YouTube shtick, if you will, to people to make people realize like, these are the ways you burn yourself out. These are the things you should avoid. These are the problems with the platforms. For us, for those of us who grew up in it, there's a little bit of an advantage, in my opinion, that I had because I grew up in the exploitation of digital cable. So, as soon as I got to Toronto and started doing stand-up and sketch and you wanted a television series, like, nobody got a series. I mean, like, some of the great performers of our peer group, and you've had them on this show, Mark Little, right? Picnic Face. They didn't get a real shot. I deserved one. Mark's for sure. not going to say that, I'm sure, but like I'll say it. That was bullshit. One season of that, that was ridiculous. They never let it found. They it, something that had that many views on the internet and not trying to let them find their TV legs. I thought was kind of shameful. Pat Thornton, right? Did Hotbox one season Space Janitors. Well, Space Chargers was an internet thing that they've kind of kept going through crowdfunding. And I think that's a different reason why that didn't. That was like trying to live in the modern internet where they went to Geek and Sundry. And then Geek and Sundry, I think, shifted focus on what they were trying to do. They went to a much more YouTubian style model with like Will Wheaton's doing tabletop talk show. I like that. Me too. But it's a different... I'm not... Don't get me wrong. There's no judgment on the content. It's a different content work like they found what worked for their audience, and
0: it's time and place. I'm sure yeah. Will Wheaton had this LA production company or his own funding to sponsor. Will Wheaton was like, Hey, guys, I'm kind of tired of doing Star Trek and all these sitcoms. Well, and Big Bang helped and his yeah, profile
1: out a lot, uh,
0: but I, yeah, sure. But you know, ultimately, he has the funds. To put a, enough of a production value to get the right people on the screen, you know that's that's we're constantly striving. I'm a nobody. Like I'll I'll be the first person to admit that I'm trying so hard not to be somebody, but to voice the somebodies that are not having the opportunity in the city.
1: Well, I think the the best way to put it is is that everyone's a showrunner almost now. Yeah, <laughs> because everyone's in the we're in an era of entertainment that is about the persona. It's about the person. So, it's really hard to do anything. It's it's, it's hard to step out when you were in front. So, all, the difference between you and I even, I was in front and now I'm trying to slide behind, right? Like, I'm trying to become somebody who produces and writes and directs and not, I don't want to be in front as much as I used to be. But there's that pressure to do it no matter what because we are in that Kevin Smith, that Dan Harmon Amanda Palmer, like there's all, no matter, pick an art form and the the part of your persona, like community gets saved because of Twitter, you know, those kinds of things happen in our industry. So there's a pressure, I think, even you at NSN to be a face of it, even when you would rather be a promoter, but now the promoters have to be out in front too. I do it
0: because...
1: It's hard not to do it.
0: I do it because I want to show new clients, new shows that are coming in, that if I can do it, and I'm just somebody who's interested. Sure, I have a media background. Sure, I have had experience behind the microphone. But if you're confident in what you enjoy, what you love, uh, what you're passionate about, anybody can do it. It's, oh, for sure. Yeah, and, I, and that's the only I'm not the poster child for it. I'm the poster child for making my friends feel the confidence they need or maybe... Funding a little bit of gear or using my home space to make this happen so you don't have to, and therefore the pressure is less. Uh, you can be more passionate about what about you're doing.
1: Jank, right? We started off this conversation about TYT. That was a huge hurdle for TYT, which was trying to get the brand to be a brand and not just be the jank Uger show. And that was where they had a lot of trouble. I know for a fact that behind the scenes of Candleland right now, That's the conversation, right? Tell me more. Jesse Brown is so much the face of Canada land that when the reporters that he hired, the people behind the scenes are writing things, they couldn't get past the Jesse issue, right? So there's people who have... You know, openly said on Twitter that I've worked for Candleland. Like, we wrote this story with the CBC. This is an interesting piece, but like, we're not the CBC bashing network. Like, Jesse's opinions aren't everyone's here. Jesse doesn't have editorial oversight on some of the pieces on Candleland. Everyone assumes if it goes through Jesse, and that's the problem that you'll have with NSN. And one day, if it, when it gets big, everybody knows the person who's the founder. And the, for the founder, the struggle is always going to be how do I bring in new voices where I can actually start to step back and say, here are the faces of this network. Like Startup with Alex Bloomberg. Right, exactly. And the funny thing is, he
0: started Startup the exact same timing as we were starting NSN. Right. And I'm just like... I'm watching a mirror image, but with somebody who has that much more funding and that a name and and all this stuff. So, it was a little disheartening at first, but then I rose above it. I was like, no, this is uh, a great way to take your baby steps. It's showing you that you're doing something that somebody also who has a little bit more power, more money, more name. If they're doing it, you're clearly doing something right. So, keep doing it. And that's why I kept doing it. You're the VP, of the Independent Web Creators of Canada and TO WebFest, which is happening May 25th to May 27th at the CN Tower. What have you personally been organizing and what are you looking forward to?
1: So the, the organization works year round. So what I was really looking forward to coming to the organization this year after a year away was I came back because I looked around and I said, there's not anything that promotes digital creators. You guys have a lot of different comics interviewing comics um, in the scene you have a lot of, you have a really cool podcasting scene in comedy, right? And you have a cool podcasting scene now that you're starting up with comic books where you've got Speech Bubble who's, you know, going to be at Tia Webfest and that's exciting, right? And really happy to see those people. So that was my goal in 2016 when we started a board year. So board years are like, you know, from quarterly. So it's like 2016 to like August of 2017. And my goal was I want to start something that we can promote creators. I want digital creators to start getting to know each other more in person. I wanted a new group in because we talked about earlier in the show the cliques happen so it becomes like everybody in that era and then the young kids come up into Toronto and they're like well we can't really go there because that's nothing there for us it's sort of the same way the Rivoli and the comedy bar and you see how all of these kind of generations have different groups well I really want to make sure that we're inclusive and we bring in new faces and people feel comfortable coming to Webfest and the big goal for me was the podcast panel that you're on I really YouTube and podcast. I feel YouTube's sort of taken care of by Buffer Festival, but we don't have Google sponsorship and we're not after it because we are a nonprofit. Because what we're doing is supposed to be for just creators alone. We have a part of the niche where Corey throws the best YouTube party. And the best, he's going to do an amazing award show this year, I think, too. And that's amazing. But we're going to have a real chat about what the hell is going on on the platform. So we're announcing some of that on Creator Town this week of who's going to be there. But it's been people who have spoken out about some of the problems of this platform, whether it was adpocalypse, whether it's LGBT content getting swept up in the filters oh oops you can't be monetized wait what
0: yeah that whole thing that just came to light yeah. recently is scary to yeah. me yeah. Scary. so this is the conversation
1: we're gonna have real conversations the first three years of Webfest. Um, like you, you say reddit's bad i'm sorry in the corporate
0: world it's a it's amplified times a thousand you know what i mean like when, when oh yeah when a big corporation is kind of the thing about reddit is it's it's bad in the sense that it's nobody's that are saying these things, and it creates this kind of stigma. Right. But when YouTube does it, I have issues. Like, that's that's where I, I draw the line.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the issue... So, this is a longer conversation that we don't have time to get into today, but... The 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 problem is, is the hands-off approach and the hands-on approach, right? So, it's the cafeteria curation problem. So, at some points, we're going to invite you all in. We're going to pick creators who get to meet personally with Johnson & Johnson so they can get branding deals because we need a star system. Otherwise, we don't have a foot in the door to negotiate with ad companies. So... YouTube kind of had to create a star system and then it got a monster it couldn't control and then it really did create a star system. And I think they tried to sort of reel it back. And it's not all of them being evil in a corner and like, you know, twiddling their thumbs Mr. Burns style. It's part of it's just volume. How do you control Daddy 05? How do you know? Like, there's no, like, there's not a team of humans in a room watching everything on YouTube. How would that work? in a re so it's this we've never in the history of television and entertainment had something like youtube now how do we make sure it doesn't become an exploitive monster but for creators who watched i watched some of tyt some of the channels tyt and they've been open about this they've put it on the internet the analytics are there and it looks like a cliff alex like it's just like then they turn the faucet off and your revenue just does a straight down nosedive and you can't build a business when you don't know where things are happening. So I'm really interested in that conversation. Uh, the co- The podcast conversation I'm really interested in is going to be a lot about how do you avoid some of the problems that YouTubers had? Like how we know where this is going. How do we build things that you can monetize? How do you sustain? How do you not burn out? How do you develop relationships like that you have at NSN where you can count on someone to deliver a podcast? What are the tips for you to be like, this is how my creators and I work together so they trust me? I want to avoid the exploitation that I saw that happened in other forms of digital creation because podcasting has clearly hit in the last two years peak interest from the public, right? Maybe it hasn't. Maybe it even is going to get more popular. But it's definitely something that I thought had kind of died out because I was doing it a long time ago, and now it's it's back with like a vengeance. And now you've got the CBC is going to be on the podcast with you. So um, RF Narani is coming for CBC to chat in that same panel. Wow! So you're going to be seated next to, and I'm hoping another special guest that I won't say now, but okay, but somebody else who I think people would really want to listen to. So the hope is that when we have these creators, we've ticketed these prices down for these two panels because they're sort of the IWCC side of things where we're really hoping to bring more folks in. So it's real; you can buy single tickets for those two panels. It's only 10 bucks. I think it's completely worth it. I know I won't put you on the spot, but a lot of times I think people are very much in this community, great community ambassadors. That's who we choose to be on panels. So you can chat with them after the panel. Like it's accessible. People can come with their armed with their questions. I'm going to moderate both of these panels so I can say, I'm going to open this to the floor. I don't want you to hear me yak. I want you to have access to these people. They're the smartest people in the rooms, chat to them. And that's what we're trying to bring together. And, Outside of WebFest, we do this actually year round and we're going to be able to do it more in the future. This is the first year we were able to get some funding and, and do it. So I'm really looking forward to building the community in Toronto. Um, and in Canada, so stay tuned too. That's why Creator Town exists because it's a podcast. You don't have to be in Toronto to listen to it. We are a national organization. It's just a volunteer organization, so to get all the people in different places, we have folks in Montreal, we have folks in Vancouver, but it's we're still building.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about T.O. Web Fest? Uh, who makes up the jury? Yeah. For the nominees.
1: So a lot of the juries on on the website, take a look. The jury comes from the industry. So traditional, new, it's everybody from actors in web series, if they're judging acting, to people who are in the industry. So every, people like AJ Fry, who are looking at sci-fi content. So it's it's a mix of traditional folks who you know work at Space Channel for sci-fi to people who have had successful sci-fi web series, if they're doing that category, action and thrills. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, So the jury system is is really interesting. So people come in and take a look. We give them six hours of content sometimes and say, this is your block. Then the WebFest and IWCC gets together. And our board is 10 people. The WebFest team is about seven, eight, nine people. And we all kind of curate that, the jury submissions and make sure that everything kind of went right and made sure the jury filled out their forms properly and... And so there's an oversight process there. The jury system, the jury process, like we're talking about building things on your own, right? TO WebFest, like that's three months of your life <laughs> just on that, making sure that it's democratic and making sure that it, it's properly done. And all the names of the cool people on there are uh, that gave their time are, are up there if they wanted their names up there. So we do our best to try to reach out to people who we think are like actually professionals in the industry. And it's not just like anybody who's a youtube comment section you know <laughs> so that being said there's there's iwcc memberships um some of the members who have done things in the past we 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 ask them to judge their peers obviously but everyone's sort of niche specific so the compo you know music is judged by people who are musicians so much like any other sure, festival sure. right so that's sort of the model of that and then what was the other question sorry but
0: well i i mean I you've answered you know basically what are they looking for was the, the yeah follow so like
1: up. that was what's okay that's what gets really difficult and we might we we'll might you know uh, this is pr this is why I am a good guest because I am way too honest and say things we probably shouldn't say out loud but I wa- when I went through the jury process this year I definitely think I'd like to change it for next year because I saw issues where I really want to bring in podcasters, but how we do that is interesting because a podcast is so different, right? It's it's like we put all of you together this year because we just don't have the bandwidth to hold a separate podcast awards. But like, there's no genre, right? It's literally just like we picked the podcasts that we thought were the best. So that was good for you <laughs> because you, had, you ended up with two selected. The hard thing is, is when it comes to like the awards section that the nominations are coming out soon. That was hard, I think, for the jury, because it's like, how do I judge Speech Bubble versus the News and Politics podcast? So, it's like, the people had to judge content based on sound quality, based on conversation. Like, was this engaging? So, the the criteria was really good, but I think it's hard to, how do you judge?
0: What are some of the standout uh, categories and nominees?
1: you any when my you can fa- name drop my favorite with iwcc is just the fact that we do best canadian series and we the fact that we do best canadian story so there's amazing canadian series but then there's stories that if you took the canadian out of them they wouldn't even be the story so they actually use our country and our and and our issues and our people and our you know cities as main planks Of the actual, you know, so that's my DJ, is a show out of Toronto that takes a look at the music culture scene from a web series standpoint. It's a narrative show. 90-year-old roommate on CBC, so something that's actually backed by the CBC, but is... Something that started as a YouTube viral video, and they decided they did this—you know—YouTube viral videos, old folks, senior citizens talking real shit about sex and stuff. And they were like, "There's something to that. Let's <laughs> make it a narrative show." So those guys, Lauren, Ethan, and, and Josh, um, who are going to be podcast guests soon on Crater Town, they did something really unique. And you know, they did well this year at um, the CSAs. Even they got nominated. Paul Souls, their lead, got a digital. CSA. Oh, wow. So those folks are coming in. Uh, there's a show called Courtside that is one of those other Canadian stories I was talking about where it talks about, It's a, it's about, you know, the f- folks in, you know, Etobicoke, Mississauga, those West Enders that, you know, live on the courts and play basketball. And, but it's like a, it's a, it's an actual community vibe that is very Toronto centric. Like you recognize it if you're from this city, you know, um, So there's a lot of those shows, you know, I'm picking Toronto shows since we're in Toronto, but there's tons of stuff from. Um, overseas this year so there's different series that are really interesting where like Linda Hamilton's in a web series this year because oh, her, wow. s- her son did a web series uh, there's a show that has Emma Thompson in it like this is where we've got to right where like in 2015 I was the spokesperson for the festival I went on CBC radio and they're like is this really a thing like that was the question and now I'm like so Emma Thompson's in a web series this year at Web Fest so it's just you know of all ages and all demographics that are coming together to, to, to talk about about the, you know, great content that's being made all over the world now. You know, it started out as a Toronto thing. It grew. And now this is our fourth fest. And we've got content from everywhere. It's just amazing to see where people have found out about the WebFest and, like, have brought their content to us, yeah.
0: You're four years in. Yeah. What opportunities do nominees get at TO WebFest? And what opportunities do the winners get? What have past winners gone on to?
1: One of the things that I love about TO WebFest is that you actually don't have to be nominated to get something out of it. Because the whole point of the IWCC putting on a festival is, is that we want new people to come in. And we want them to have access to our speakers. Like, this is a volunteer-run thing. It's to better the industry. So, I just chatted with the... the um Cherrydale Productions, and they got together and put together, they've done two web series. One's called All for One, and another one's called March Family Letters, or adaptations of famous works, right? So, Jane Austen, um, and of course, The Three Musketeers is, is uh, All for One. And they met Bernie Sue. At the very first Web Fest, they weren't even nominees. They ended up working with Pemberley Digital, which was Hank Green and Bernie Sue at the time. And they put together, at the time, they were like the biggest name in web series. They had done a literary adaptation as well. So... They got that deal there. Basically, they found somebody to talk to. We introduced them, Carrie, who was, they introduced them. That's happened. Sam Juan was a board member. She started a web series that went on to do, to go on to uh, Omni. It's called Sudden Master. And then at the same time she had that deal, she went on and did Second Gen, which aired on City TV last year as a full length half an hour. So there's a lot of people that have had success stories coming through in um, meetings, Uh, as well, because we do bring the CBC and we bring people in from Crave and, you know, YouTube's been there before. Patreon's come to WebFest before. So, I think it's a lot of networking among other creators. We've noticed a lot of people have found production teams and partners and different things. It's just a good way for people to meet and and hang out. That's that's the most important thing in our industry. I think the big thing that I'd say to creators that if they're listening to this and they come out is like, go up to Alex. Go, Go up to, you know, whoever is in the in the room that you go to and don't be afraid to say something. Like if they were nice enough to accept a TO web fest invitation, sure. they're probably nice enough to sit down and go, I'll give you some time or at the very least exchange emails and you can pitch them in a more professional way at a later date, but come up to people, come up to folks, say, you know, bring, think of it as a networking opportunity though. That's what I really want to say to creators. Don't be passive. Come armed with some good questions. Come armed with some ideas of where you want to be. And um, for the folks that can't afford it, too, they can email the organization because we're we're doing our best to try to get folks in no matter what. We don't want there to be hurdles. So um, info at IWCC slash CIWC dot org and or just look us up. IWCC helps on Twitter and send a flare out and I'll answer it. While you're at it, what are your plugs? Oh, my plugs are going to be all TO Webfest related right now. TOWebfest.com for tickets and everything like that. IWCC for the rest of the year. So if you have questions or, you know, you want to be connected to some creators, you need some help, you're starting up a web series or a podcast or a vlog channel or anything really in the web realm we're really here we're, we're actually here to help I and mean, like it sounds really corny and like Capra-esque, but that's really the point of the organization the joke i made to you before is like nepotism for people that don't have nepotism right like i walked through a minefield to try to get things on traditional television to get great partnerships on the web and i don't want people to have to do that i want to shorten the distance from A to Z for creators that are coming to the city. I don't want you to fall into the same mistakes that we've seen other creators fall into. So feel free to email it. You can email me or just find me at Dan Spirin on Twitter. So whether you want to go through the organization or you just want to tweet it at me personally, either way is fine. And uh, for ourselves, Creator Town, every week on girth radio and that it's also a podcast for people who want to make something and we try our best to make that show be as relevant as humanly possible for people to get tips from just the way people process things like you were on it and did a great job of explaining to people why the network model makes sense and at this web fest i think we'll talk a bit we'll get a little bit more in depth on the difference between like cbc radio and the difference between alex and nsn and what the advantages and disadvantages are i'll tell you the one advantage i see They're only making four shows a year. So, (laughs) I mean, and they only have the budget to make four shows a year. So, it's like, can you do that? Are you going to be, do you need more experience? Do you have a more niche topic that can't go national? All of those things, right? Dan, I, I want to thank you. I have
0: so many more questions for another interview. <laughs> we can go on for hours. That's the thing I love about our budding friendship is it's real talk for real people. I want to congratulate you on your success and your future successes with the IWCC and TO WebFest, May 25th to May 27th at the and Tower. You heard it from the VP of the IWCC himself, Dan Spirin. Thank you so much for coming
1: on today. Thanks, Alex. And thanks for what you're doing for creators with this network. I really want people to find it and listen to it as much as they humanly can, because there's so many amazing people in the city that they should hear about.
0: Thanks, Dan Spearin. Never sleepers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Ross Never Sleeps. Sleep tight.